I think, in your career is to be a T-shaped person. Uh, so basically, you have a lot of breath, mm -hmm. but you have a deep specialty, right? And so if people ask you, like, but what's your, but what do you actually do? Like, what's your real specialty? Mm -hmm. I can say I'm at the very intersection of neuroscience and AI. Yeah. Those are the two things that I'm, I'm good at, and specifically that, that intersection. And, you know, in that intersection, there's really not a whole lot of people. There's maybe like 100 people in the world that yeah. like really care deeply about this, uh, this, this set of topics. Mm -hmm. But that's your, that's your death right there. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Data Scientist Show. I'm Daliana, and today we have Patrick Minow. He is an independent scientist and neurodata scientist. He has a PhD in visual neuroscience at McGill University and a postdoc at UCLA studying how the brain produces meaningful representations that drive behaviors. He later worked at Google as a software engineer studying how people view and interact with web pages. He was also a brain-computer interface BCI engineer at Facebook Reality Labs, building a BCI that allows you to type with your brain. He has around 10K followers on Twitter talking about neuroAI and writes a blog sharing his career journey and learnings along the way. He was the CTO of the first edition of NeuroMatch Academy, an online summer school in computational neuroscience. All their materials are free and available online. And there's a fun fact. Patrick and I met around uh, seven years ago when we used to be housemates in LA. So it's great to uh, hang out in person again. And uh, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, it's good to be here. So I'm very excited to talk about your work in neuro-AI, brain-computer interface, understanding the brain through artificial neural network, and your journey from postdoc to Google and uh, Facebook. And uh, we're going to do something special here. We're going to drink some uh, grape juice. <laughs> Cheers. Special grape juice, yes. Cheers. <laughs> That's how we say it. Yeah, just a regular... Saturday morning, two data scientists talking about brain, AI, career while getting hammered. <laughs> no, no, no. no we, we're not. We are being, being very reasonable, of course. Yeah, but we might. <laughs> okay, so you studied math and physics in college. How did you get into computational uh, neuroscience and later data science? Yeah, so um, I think right around the time where my classmates were deciding to get into grad school, I was like, oh, do I really want to study string theory? You know, it's, it's in physics, the questions that you can ask, they're so, um, they're so far away from reality because a lot of these problems have been solved in the, in the 19th and the early 20th century. Uh, whereas, um, you know, in neuroscience, you can ask almost any question and it's going to be a meaningful question even as a, as a novice so you can ask a question like what is sleep like what is the role of sleep what does it do and that is <laughs> that is a, a research subject in itself you can easily do a, a phd on that whereas yeah. they say that you really have to be at the end of your postdoc in physics to get to the point where you can ask yourself questions which haven't been answered already so there's all these ripe fruit for uh, for the picking so um i got lucky enough to do a, a minor in neuroscience mm -hmm. uh, while i was um doing my uh, joint honors in, in math and physics because i figured i didn't have enough on my plate 
And uh, I was introduced to a, a professor where I did a, a summer internship. Mm -hmm. And so that was how I found my, um, my master's and then eventually PhD lab. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And uh, so after you finish your postdoc, um, can you tell us how did you get into Google and what was the first project you worked on? Well, yeah, I mean, we uh, we were uh, in the same place at the same time while yeah. I was uh, doing this uh, this search, and I remember, you know, we were <laughs> we, uh, so for the for the benefit of uh, of people at home, you know, we used to live in this uh, in this house that was uh, in Westwood, not mm -hmm. very far from right. uh, from UCLA. And that had a lot of postdocs and a lot of grad students that were kind of in the same situation. Like, what am I going to be when I grow up? Mm -hmm. And uh, and so I, I got I kind of into the same thing at uh, where, you know, maybe six months or like nine months into my postdoc, I was like, you know, what, what, like, what am I doing in terms of, of, uh, of career paths? Like, do I really want to be uh, a scientist given that it's quite difficult to get a professorship and, and those sorts of considerations. So, uh, I started doing, um, uh, online classes. So I did, uh, Tim Roughgarden's, uh, CS, you know, data structures and algorithms class on Coursera. Mm -hmm. Um, and I started, you know, knocking on, uh, on different doors. And at the time I really didn't know where I was going to end up. So I applied and, and tried to get into a bunch of different places for which I was, it was a very poor fit or I was wildly underqualified. Yeah. Uh, but then eventually, you know, through time I, uh, I found my way, but I applied from, uh, things like hedge funds to, you know, startups in, uh, in San Francisco, to um, artificial intelligence research places, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of different places. And then I ended up at Google. Yeah. So what was the first project at Google? So, um, it, you know, Google is a, is a big place and it's very, uh, I'm sure that when you came to Amazon, yeah. you must have been like, wow, <laughs> there's a <laughs> lot of stuff here, right? right? And so um, a lot of these big companies have the same process by which uh, you know, they introduce you to uh, the uh, the systems that the, the companies uh, have because a lot of the, the the tech stack is completely custom. You know, it yeah. wouldn't be like off the shelf things that uh, that you would already know about. Um, so I got assigned to uh, to one of these projects, like really focused on software engineering, uh, like data engineering, like building data pipelines, and to be able to visualize them. And I think like the impression that I got out of this initial project was like wow, there is a lot of stuff that goes on <laughs> behind the scenes to really make this, uh, uh, this thing happen. So it gave me a little bit of entryway into the world of like understanding how such a big organization can create code that um, can capture data yeah. and, and bring value out of that data. But, you know, when you start out, you just have like a tiny, tiny view over everything that goes on inside the company. Right. So it's very, very difficult. Like if uh, <laughs> I think that people may, may have a uh, um, kind of a screwed understanding of like, well, you can just go in and like suggest something and it will be meaningful. Right. But, you know, the reality is that most of the ideas that I would pitch to uh, to my manager, mm -hmm. you know, it was like, well, we tried that two years ago. We tried that five years ago. Yeah. We tried that 10 years ago. It didn't work or it's already implemented, mm -hmm. but you don't see it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So it was really a process of, um, you know, taking my knowledge of software engineering practices mm -hmm. and then applying it to this new system, which for, for which it was very difficult to understand 
uh, the entire thing. Yeah. So you were in, um, you were studying neuroscience, and did you feel there's a disconnect between your research and your work at Google? Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely. But there's always a way, right? Yeah. And um, so I think that when I came into this uh, to this group, uh, which is called uh, Adsmetrics, so it's mm -hmm. a group that really uh, does data, data science for ads and determines, for instance, should we do this launch versus yeah. that launch? Uh, you know, what are the top line metrics? How is, um, you know, things like CTR and revenue mm -hmm. and making sure that those things stay rock solid because obviously that's very important to the company's bottom line. Mm -hmm. And so when I came in to this group that was, you know, uh, the majority were... Um, uh, PhDs and stats, right? And I come in and I'm like a neuroscience guy. <laughs> they were like, "What are you doing here?" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I no, I, uh, I I say this in the uh, in jest that people were obviously like very respectful, and mm -hmm. and I think that there's a lot of people inside these companies that are just generally interested in other areas of uh, of science and yeah. uh, and, and engineering. So I got like a, a pretty warm reception, but it took me a while to find. Um, a time and a place where I could really apply that knowledge that I had about the visual system, which mm -hmm. is what my PhD was about, yeah. to problems which mattered for the company. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what was the problem you were um, trying to solve there? Yeah. So uh, it's an interesting question. So um, I had uh, a lot of this uh, of discussions with my manager about, you know, OK, so software engineering, like how could I really do something interesting on the software engineering side. But, you know, locally, I didn't really have a lot of peers uh, for software engineering because it was mostly a statistics group. So I was kind of disadvantaged in the in the sense that I was trying to learn software engineering at a big company, but mm -hmm. I wasn't inside of a big software engineering group, mm -hmm. which means that I, I would have kind of have to come with already the, the knowledge. So um, so it wasn't a very good fit for the software engineering side. But, you know, something my, my manager told me about, I, I thought was uh, was very interesting. You know, he was like, oh, you're, you know, you're a visual neuroscientist. And, yeah. You know, we uh, we do like these uh, these vision experiments sometimes, you know, like things that I think like uh, affect the uh, the eye. So I was like, oh, OK, you know, tell me more. Like, what mm -hmm. uh, what is that like? And uh, uh, I, I can talk about this uh, publicly because there was an sure. article in the press uh, that was uh, that was published in, in The Guardian, which you can all uh, look at home mm -hmm. but there was this famous instance where um there was uh, some uh, some engineers or some designers i should say went into a design meeting and then proposed to different engineers and to the top brass three different colors for the blue links yeah and uh links you know, uh, for a gmail uh i think it might have been for for gmail or mm -hmm. it might have been for the search engine's yeah. result page okay um <laughs> you know like this this was a long time ago mm -hmm. uh, but um uh, so uh, in any case, they couldn't decide like which one was the best. Yeah. Uh, so they just decided to run an A-B test, mm -hmm. right? Like a very large scale A-B test. So uh, and the name of this experiment was Fifty Shades of Blue, <laughs> <laughs> right? So, uh, of course, inspired by the uh, by the famous book. But uh, the idea was to try something like yeah. uh, 50 different experimental arms where uh, they tried different uh, shades for the uh, for the blue link. Mm -hmm. And some of them just had more positive metrics than than uh, than others. So um, I think the number that's quoted in the in the Guardian article for 2009 was something like 200 million dollars, which would come up to a percent 
of revenue. Yeah. So obviously, like these are these are big numbers. And when I was told about this uh, this story and I read about it in the press, I was like, "Whoa, okay, I'm a visual neuroscientist. Yeah, I care about how humans." you know, interact with the world visually. Right. And you're telling me that right now there's experiments with millions of people in each experimental arm mm -hmm. and they're doing real world tasks which have real world stakes and you're getting all this data and you have like these tiny air bars. I like my mind was absolutely blown. Yeah. Right. And um, so I figured like, oh, I, I know about visual neuroscience. Mm -hmm. I know how to do these experiments in a way that that is uh, that is you know, more theory based. Yeah. And then the combination of the theory base plus, you know, the statistics base, mm -hmm. I think is, uh, is a very powerful intersection. Yeah. So I did a lot of experiments in, um, of that type that really focused on, you know, different visual changes. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And uh, I know we're all familiar with A-B testing and also different type of, um, you know, designs. So how specifically did you apply your knowledge in like the visual kind of neuroscience to this experimentation? Yeah. So I think it's more about, uh, so I think that the, the stats part, they definitely had it completely, you know, well handled. Yeah. Right? Right. I know you guys just, have very powerful internal tools in Google. Absolutely. So, you know, there's excellent infrastructure to do uh, massively parallel uh, experiments. Mm -hmm. So that's already existed. You know, there's multiple uh, experimental layers that we can use. You know, they have the, infra the, the infrastructure to, to um, run multiple experiments in mm -hmm. parallel. Uh, to, you know, calculate statistics, uh, archives of, you know, what happened over time. And there was also, uh, you know, old experiments that, you know, had been done that were kind of, that mostly affected the look and feel of the page. And then I, I could analyze those uh, as well. So all these elements came into place. I had like a huge toolbox to, to work with. It's not like I was building this, uh, this stuff from, uh, from scratch. Um, or, for, or from, uh, from nothing. However, uh, where my knowledge of, you know, visual neuroscience like really came into play is how do you understand these, uh, the, the changes, right? And how do you suggest new, say, new, mm -hmm. new changes uh, to the web page, depending on what, uh, on what you know about, uh, about the visual system? Yeah. Cool. Um, can you maybe give us uh, just an example, like what did you suggest that someone from just pure statistical training wouldn't know? I can't really talk about that. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, and uh, later on, did you move to the Google Brain uh, group? No, so I uh, ended up staying in this, uh, in this group. So we did, you know, work on multiple... Um, uh, analyzing, uh, you know, past data from uh, from uh, from different launches, mm -hmm. and also working on our own launches. Yeah. And I think it was a very fruitful kind of collaboration where we were able to uh, to make some, you know, really exceptional launches uh, during that time. But uh, I really stayed inside of of this group, and I got to learn a lot about um, statistics, mm -hmm. which is a different thing than what I was doing during my PhD. So, uh, you know, the the, the bread and butter of uh, the kinds of visual neuroscience that I do is GLMs, mm -hmm. right? And especially, uh, essentially correlating how a neuron responds to, you know, different kinds of things that, yeah. uh, that you view in the world. And so the tool of the trade at that time was generalized linear models mm -hmm. and in particular, you know, Poisson models. Um, 
And I got to work on a lot of other different kinds of, uh, of tooling that I'd never known about, you know? So, uh, one thing that I never knew about, uh, was about experimental design. Like, how do you power your experiments? Mm -hmm. How do you determine like how well powered you are? Yeah. Um, causal inference, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's often, uh, that's often a, a problem because we have, sometimes we have you know, experiment data, but other times we have observational data. Right. And so um, there are questions in neuroscience, you know, in my field of specialty, that people don't necessarily um, think directly in terms of, uh, of causal inference, but mm -hmm. where the, the principles of causal inference have um, a lot of good things to say. Um, and I think you interviewed uh, Conrad, right? Yeah, I interviewed Conrad. And that's Conrad. his, uh, so Conrad Cording, of course, a uh, full professor at, uh, at UPenn. Mm -hmm. And that's his, uh, you know, main field of study. Yeah. Well, one of his main fields of study mm -hmm. is causal inference for, uh, for neuroscience. So I was able to glean a lot of that insight from, uh, from that group. So I think you have to be very opportunistic about yeah. these things, right? When you're in a group, so... Uh, you know, to, to, to get back to, uh, you know, our time in L.A., mm -hmm. uh, I was not opportunistic when I was in L.A., right? <laughs> so I had my lifestyle in yeah. Montreal. I, you know, biked to work and mm -hmm. I did these kinds of things. And then I moved to L.A. and I was like, I'm going to L.A. and I'm going to take my L.A., my, my Montreal lifestyle and it's going to go great. And then I found out that, you know, if you live in the in Westwood and you don't have a car. Yeah. <laughs> it's not great. Me either. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so that's an important lesson, right? If you're mm -hmm. in a place, you got to take the, the things that you're, the, that you're given and make the most out of them. So in that case, like what I had is I had world-class, you know, statisticians, yeah. uh, that I was at and, uh, I was able to, you know, learn as much as I could from, uh, from their practices and take that back to, you know, different kinds of problems and, and technology and, and research and which are equally applicable, for instance, to startups. So you got to be opportunistic, yeah. I guess, is the TLDR. Right. And also, I remember when we lived in the house, you organized a reading group. And uh, did you also um, have a community to read papers together at Google? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that when you're an adult learner, mm. it is so easy to fall off the rails, yeah. right? So you're like, I'm going to start this book and it's going to be really hard, yeah. but life gets in the way, right? We're uh, a little bit older now, I won't say, <laughs> I won't say numbers, <laughs> but you know, we're at the stage where uh, you know, we have responsibilities and we have work and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. So you know, the first thing that's going to go is, um, is that you're going to lose track of, uh, of the things that you want to study. But, you know, a friend of mine uh, uh, whom I was uh, working at, at Facebook with told me, if you can read a book like on some technical subject an hour a day, I can guarantee you that at the end of the year, you'll be a heck of a lot star smarter than, uh, than you were before. Yeah. And that kind of, of persistent learning mm -hmm. is so important. But... You know, different peoples have different levels of motivation and, and <laughs> are, you know, more or less easily distracted. So I don't know how, how you are about, uh, about distraction. Yeah. So I try to have some sort of routine, but I think for different people, different strategy um, applies. So some people might works well with some type of structure. I read one hour a week and I try that. I just think it doesn't work. I'm the type of person... 
I like things when they're a little bit unstructured, more like um, kind of a cycle. Maybe some days I don't read at all, but maybe some days I really are curious about something, then I might just spend five hours reading about something. I think that type of flow works better for me. Mm -hmm. And I agree, you know, there's different kinds of flows that are very useful for different people. But I think that having the social pressure of yeah. coming to reading group and, you know, you come in and you're like, I didn't do anything and I didn't read the paper yeah. or I didn't read the chapter. I didn't do the exercises. And I'm just like kind of here, like sitting and, <laughs> and waiting for things to happen just makes you feel the worst. Right. Uh, so like nobody's you, <laughs> probably shaming you, but you. No, but you feel, feel the shame. The shame is there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I need to join a, a reading group. Yeah, so I had a chance to... So there was already a reading group when I came in at, the, at Google for mm -hmm. uh, the second edition of Kevin Murphy's book. So Kevin Murphy is a uh, researcher, I think he was at UBC before, mm -hmm. and then he moved to, uh, to Google. And uh, he has this book on uh, probabilistic machine learning. Mm -hmm. Um, and so he was working on a second edition. This was right around the time that, you know, deep learning was really making a dent in industrial applications. And he had a first draft of the book and he was like, well, it would be great if people at Google, you know, looked at this, um, at this draft. So I joined this reading group and, you know, after a little while, uh, I got a chance to run the, uh, the reading group. So it was a great occasion to meet other people in other areas of the company that weren't necessarily inside of Google Brain, but mm -hmm. that were interested in problems in machine learning. Yeah. And interestingly, a lot of the people that I met there, they did end up working on artificial intelligence mm -hmm. and machine learning later on, right? So uh, they might have been software engineers in ads, for instance, and you know, slowly made their way to, uh, for instance, uh, Google Brain. So it was a that was both a mechanism for me to hold myself accountable. Yeah. Like I'm running this thing. I should be, you know, should, <laughs> I should show up to meetings. I should have read the things. Yeah. I should have the, the, done the exercise and I should actually like kind of understand what I'm talking about, even though I didn't at first. Yeah. Right. Um, so it's kind of a fake it till you make it, mm -hmm. but, um, uh, it would definitely like help me learn a lot more about uh, machine learning surrounded by people who were, uh, you know, very knowledgeable. So, you know, Kevin Murphy helped us out every once in a while, uh, you know, telling us um, uh, about, you know, different kinds of, uh, yeah. of, uh, of ideas. Um, and, of course, sharing with us his, uh, his draft of this uh, book that wouldn't have been available anywhere else. He just released, I think, the first he just released the book now you know it's been like six or seven years yeah yeah it took a while uh yeah. there's a lot of stuff that's uh, that's happening in machine learning yeah so. so i think the benefit of working in a big company is maybe you're in a group that's not related to the area that you are uh, most interested in but you can still um talk to the people like i have uh, some people joined amazon they just messaged me hey i saw your linkedin post and can we have a chat and then you know you can network with people and like you did you um find a group and if the group doesn't exist you can create your own group keep yourself accountable and also it's a great way to network yeah, absolutely. And you have to bring intent into this because, I mean, the company is huge, right? Yeah. It's, it's very easy to just focus on 
your own group plus right. maybe like the two or three groups that are like right around you mm -hmm. and no literally no one nobody else in the company but ultimately uh, you know a lot of interesting product decisions come from interactions between people that would normally you know not really talk to each other um, so it, it's good to create these uh, these kind of faraway links uh, inside the company yeah and uh, so then how did you get into Facebook Yeah, so uh, I'd been um, I'd been contacted by a recruiter. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'd been a year and a half at uh, at Google, and I was contacted by a recruiter who was like, "Oh, you know, would you like a uh, to apply for a machine learning engineer job?" And so I kind of kept it in the back of my mind. But then I saw an article in I think it was Business Insider or one of these types of publications, maybe TechCrunch, um, that said that Facebook is working on this brand new project to read. Uh, brain waves or, or read brain mm -hmm. information and then translate it into text. And I was like, that sounds awesome. I, <laughs> I want to be in on that. So uh, the next time that the, uh, the recruiter contacted me, I was like, well, I'm not interested in the machine learning uh, engineer job. I would like to apply for this, you know, Skunkworks project. Mm -hmm. And she was like, well, you know, I, I don't really know, like this is kind of a new effort. Like maybe, you know, it would, uh, it would make a lot of, I, I'm not sure it would make a lot of sense. And, but she actually, you know, followed through yeah. um, and talked internally to a recruiter. And within three days I was having my interview. And then four days later I had my offer. Wow. Yeah. Um, they were looking for, <laughs> I this this is a, a very uh, strange combination of uh, of things, but mm -hmm. they were looking someone with industry experience, of course. Mm -hmm. You know, so they didn't want somebody that just had a postdoc yeah. that had a neuroscience PhD um, that was uh, both a coder and that knew a little bit about or had interest in hardware. Yeah, and there's maybe like three people that <laughs> in the whole <laughs> world that have that wow. right? at that time. Now it's a little bit more common. Yeah. Of course, you know, uh, Neurotech is a real thing and, and there's Neuralink and a lot of these companies. But at the time, it was a, it was a very rare kind of uh, combination of things. Yeah. And uh, like you mentioned, they're looking for people with industry experience, although your work at Google wasn't directly related to brain-computer interface, but still contribute to your resume. Oh, it absolutely contributes to, uh, to your resume. But industry experience is, I think, more than just direct experience with, you know, system X. Yeah. So you can say, oh, uh, so some jobs will say, like, you have to know SQL and this particular version of SQL for mm -hmm. like for uh, for this particular purpose. So it wasn't like really about that, like about knowing a particular system. It was knowing what are the kinds of questions that people care about in an industrial setting. How does that differ from uh, the uh, the academic setting? Uh, how do you interact inside of a big company? Like all of these things were important to this uh, to this new project. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the project? How do you type without? Uh, how do you uh, type with your brain? Uh, yeah, I mean it's a it's a very uh, interesting idea. So um, I think that uh, uh, people should know about some of the technologies that uh, people use to read uh, brain activity. Mm -hmm. So okay, so the first thing is that you know if you read from a single neuron inside of the brain, it its signal is going to be correlated with uh, either the kinds of sensory inputs that it receives yeah. or the sense, the um, 
the motor outputs mm -hmm. uh, that it can create. So you can look up a, a, a video uh, online of uh, uh, the robotic uh, fist bump, um, which was uh, this um, uh, this uh, experiment or the study uh, which was done, and it was a demonstration that you could read information from the motor cortex, right? So the arm mm -hmm. and uh, so from the, the arm representation inside the motor cortex you could read that directly with these invasive electrodes mm -hmm. and then use that to control a robotic arm so you can yeah. do something like feed yourself uh chocolate even though you're paraplegic for instance, right right so you're just moving your limbs but by the power of thought mm -hmm. that seems <laughs> it seems like science fiction yeah um but when you think about it what happens is that uh, you know, there's information that's in the, the motor cortex, which are the parts that, you know, uh, that uh, that move the limbs. And then normally it would be routed eventually to uh, the spinal cord and yeah. then eventually uh, to the muscles in order to create movement. So if you could just bypass this process and just go a little bit higher up the chain, you can figure out, you know, what are people's intent um, to, uh, to move. Okay. Uh, so, um, you know, speech is, uh, is quite similar in that sense to, uh, um, so <laughs> I'm speaking right now, right? So mm -hmm. you can see that, uh, my troth is, is moving right. in time with, uh, with what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, there's a lot of muscles inside of the vocal tract that are being controlled. So in that sense, you know, speech is also, uh, a motor thing. And there's a lot of semantic information that's uh, that's also available inside the brain. So if you combine all these things, you have this hope that like, oh, maybe you can actually decode the intent to speak mm -hmm. um, using uh, different kinds of methods and then translate that uh, to text for the same reason that I can take the the, the sounds that are coming out uh, of, of my mouth, which are just you know, small, very small changes in pressure yeah. in the, in local air pressure that get picked up by a microphone. And then, you know, I can translate them into text using, for instance, uh, wave to text. I can use uh, different kinds of transformer architectures. Mm -hmm. You know, there's different deep learning systems that are able to align um, speech signals to text. So, yeah. you know, you could potentially, or at least, you know, it would make sense that you could mm -hmm. do that using directly the brain signal which after all is <laughs> it's like uh it's like trying to measure the uh, how a puppet moves mm -hmm. right uh you can measure it from from my fingers or you can measure it from the movement of the puppet like yeah do you understand yeah. what i'm uh, yeah. what i'm saying like there's a lot of different places where you can get the signal mm -hmm. got it and uh trying to understand the data science and machine learning element of it so uh, if I understand correctly, so the neuro if in our brain, the neurons, if we I want to say something or I want to move my body, it would generate some sort of uh, image that we're able to um, scan it and then yeah, sort out. of. Um, so the image aspect is um, so there's this little there, there's this thing inside the motor cortex which is called the homunculus, which just means little man, mm -hmm. right? And it's a map that goes from the motor cortex to to the body. Yeah. Um, so basically, if you look at two different areas inside of the uh, the motor cortex, 
which are close to each other, mm -hmm. they tend to represent uh, areas on the body which are close to each other. Mm -hmm. But we have overrepresentation of some parts mm -hmm. of our body because we have very fine movements in these places. So the speech and, and the vocal track, as well as the fingers, are mm -hmm. two examples of, of such places. So basically, it's this exaggerated map. But inside of, so in the sense uh, of if you want to take a, an, an image of, right. of this area, mm -hmm. then you would see that you know hypothetically if you had this image you would see oh um you know the hand area or the hand knob area is a little bit more active than the other areas that means that the hand is active mm. right or same thing with uh with the, the speech vocal track you know you would uh, see like a pixel that lights up in the speech area and you would say oh this person is speaking but uh in fact at the more granular level mm -hmm. at the level of individual neurons you'll find uh neurons that uh, will be selective or will respond or will be correlated with like the movement of a finger mm -hmm. right or the movement of the forearm that you might do uh you know to in order to move a joystick yeah so it's really a question of solving a supervised learning problem mm. right ultimately when you think about translating speech to text it's a problem of um so you you know the, the classic way of setting up this uh, this problem is that you'll have uh, the data from a microphone it'll be sampled at you know 44.1 uh, kilohertz and then you know people will typically do a couple of pre-processing steps like they'll calculate uh, um, Fourier coefficients and then they'll take the Fourier transform of that they'll give them the sepstrom and they'll take this input and try to align it to a textual representation of said thing and the textual representation can have different kinds of, uh, of representation. So it can be a character by mm -hmm. character. It can be word parts. It can be whole words. Um, it uh, could be, you know, pronunciation of words even. And then you have like some dictionary at the end that, that comes in. Yeah. And then it's a, uh, uh, it's a soft alignment problem mm -hmm. uh, that happens, right? So which you could solve with something like. Uh, an RN, uh, an RNN, mm -hmm. uh, or these days you would mostly use something like a transformer. Yeah. Right. So the core of it is basically after you collect those images um, or um, th those texts, it become either a, a computer vision problem or natural language processing um, problem. Yeah. So I think that there are uh, there are clear ways in which these problems kind of parallel each other mm -hmm. right uh if you're talking about something like language well it's a sim like we know how to process language and translate it into text yeah so you know you would want uh similar kinds of uh of of ways of translating the brain information because it's just one other method of recording the signal but it's not necessarily an intuitive method like if you look at in the like you couldn't look at a neuron and react the same way that if you you know hear somebody's speech for yeah. instance right um so we have our own transfer functions that we need to to, to decorrelate out of mm. this whole thing um but if someone is interested in the field of um of brain computer interfaces yeah. and they're wondering like what areas of machine learning should i be studying yeah. in order to be relevant mm -hmm. uh to this uh to this field so uh there are several so first of all like your classical linear uh models i mean that's your bread and butter mm -hmm. right your glms right your generalized linear models yeah um, your dimensionality reduction techniques like, you know, PCA and, uh, and the like, 
uh, very important core things in, in neuroscience. Then in the world of, uh, of machine learning, both supervised and unsupervised um, uh, models. And I would say that if you're interested in this particular field, sequence models, right? Because remember, everything that happens in the brain happens in time. Mm. There's no such thing as, as a meaningful snapshot of the brain at any one time, Yeah. right? So anything that has to do with time that models something that, uh, that changes over time is probably the right thing to look at. So whether it's, uh, it's transformers or uh, RNNs, for instance, uh, that whole part of the field is really interesting. Unsupervised models, uh, I think, are also quite relevant mm -hmm. uh, to, uh, to people. Like, you want to find good representations, which... So, for instance, one problem that people will have when they, uh, when they do BCI is that, you know, your camera, it doesn't change from day to day, right? It's basically the same camera. Mm -hmm. But the brain, it changes, yeah. right? So, you want to read out information from it in a way that those changes from day to day uh, don't matter so much. So uh, in order to do that, you know, you have to or it's possible to do uh, different kinds of unsupervised learning that try to separate out, you know, that information which changes from day to day from the information that stays constant. So that's another part, I, I think, which is uh, which is interesting to learn. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> you know, if uh, if you follow it so far, it sure sounds like uh, the parts of machine learning that you, sh that you should learn about if you want to do BCI mm. is most of it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. 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 That's a very exciting because before I talk to you, I just feel like this kind of very mysterious um, area that I don't know what was the prerequisite to get into, but sounds like you need, you do need to have some domain knowledge about the neuroscience, understanding the brain, but the core is uh, the deep learning methods um, that as data science, we will probably already uh, know how to apply them. So my question is, what are the um, challenges when you um, work on processing those images or like those texts? Well, so I mentioned one, which is that um, you your signals are going to change from uh, from day to day. Mm. Um, so we don't we don't really realize it, and I don't want to. If anybody is a little bit squir uh, 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 squirmish, uh, what do you, like uh, is a little bit uh, sensitive to the stomach at home, yeah. just. I'm sorry about what, I, what I, about what I'm about to say, right. but the brain the, the brain is a very squishy thing, yeah. right? So the brain has about the consistency of butter, of hot, of like warm uh, table <laughs> butter. It's true, yeah. right? So if you, I take like if I take a a knife, you know, it has about the same uh, a module Young's modulus mm -hmm. as as table butter, and that's like squishing inside of your brain, and then there's uh, blood that's being pumped. Up. So the whole brain is just like some very, very squishy kind of, uh, yeah. of, uh, of place to look at. So it's not like an engineering system where you can be like, I'm going to take this, uh, I'm going to take this lead and I'm just going to solder it on something and it's going to stay exactly this way. And it's not going to move by more than a few microns. I mean, the whole thing is just moving all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, if you if you go on the internet right now and and um, and look up fMRI models of what happens during the heartbeat, it's incredible. Like the whole brain, like basically bobbles up and down mm -hmm. with uh, with the heart. So, anyways, the point with this is 
everything moves, everything is squishy, and yeah. everything is kind of a mess. So um, that's a big challenge, right? Like the fact that my signal now might not may mean the same thing tomorrow mm. is, uh, is a huge problem. So um, if I have something like so let's uh, let's take a look at uh, something that uh, we can discuss in a little bit more detail because there's been some details that have been uh, that have been put out in the public, sure. like Neuralink's uh, implant. Yeah. Right. So you have like a bunch of these neural threads. Mm -hmm. These neural threads are well, they're just like little, they're little tiny wires basically. Mm -hmm. They're little micro wires, right? And they're going to be put uh, next to, uh, to to different neurons, so they're going to listen to um, these uh, these different neurons. And there's, I don't know, like a thousand of them or, or something like mm -hmm. that. So you have a time series, which is, you know, a thousand, um, a thousand like parallel measurements uh, and the sampling rate. I don't actually know what the what their sampling rate is, but it might be something between 10 and 40 kilohertz. Maybe they just detect these little blips. Right. So when an individual neuron spikes uh, and communicates with uh, with other neurons down the line, it creates this little blip of electrical activity. Mm. And so maybe that's the only thing that's uh, that's communicated. I haven't looked in uh, in detail, but the kinds of problems they're going to have with that is like, well, this is if it's, uh, for instance, at 40 kilohertz and there's a thousand of these in parallel, that's a huge amount of bandwidth to deal with. Yeah. Right. So just like, just thinking about like, OK, how do you do like machine learning when your data sets uh, are, you know, terabytes, but just for like one day's data and mm -hmm. you need to concatenate, you know, you know, hundreds of days of data is uh, worth to be able to do something useful. So that's a, so that's a challenge. The fact that it changes from day to day, and you know, so the these things are inside of this hot environment. So maybe they'll corrode over time. Maybe the uh, the impedance will uh, will change. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are real physical systems. <laughs> I, I to get back to maybe something that's a little bit more intuitive for uh, for statisticians. Um, so. Um, my wife was collaborating with uh, with a statistician at UCSF, and he told her this uh, this story where you know they were doing this uh, this health research, and I'm not uh, sure exactly like where it, where it was, but it was about like fifteen thousand kilometers or about ten thousand miles away mm -hmm. from San Francisco, and what he uh, what he told her is that you know he would get on a plane. And then fly to this place, uh, you know, ten thousand miles away, yeah. and make sure that the data was entered correctly in Excel, basically, in the in these spreadsheets or in yeah. whatever other system that mm -hmm. uh, that they used to make sure that they had uh, the uh, the right data. Mm. So data quality <laughs> is the most important thing. Yeah. So statisticians definitely know this. Yeah. And getting consistent data is so, so, so important. Mm -hmm. And you have exactly the same thing in, uh, in neural data analysis. So I think like the deep principles, they really extrapolate from one area to, uh, to another. Maybe, maybe you're not convinced and you're like, I think that this, this is actually very, very different than what no, I do. No, no, it's actually, you know, a lot of times the challenges did come in the data part and uh, a lot of times the model doesn't work is not because the model is not advanced enough it's because the data is not good or the assumption you had when you collect the data is flawed so how did you tackle that challenge then yeah how can you tackle the challenge um so i think that for the day-to-day -day thing there's uh there's different research on how to deal with uh, with drift mm -hmm. it's possible that if you have microwires, for instance, they're going to displace a little bit from one day to the other so that 
you basically have like partial observations. Yeah. So essentially, maybe on one day you have 100% of the data and then the next day you'll have 30% of it is going to be censored, mm -hmm. right? And you don't know which day is which day. <laughs> yeah. So uh, people have different ways of, uh, of doing that. So they can do like template matching so that, you know, maybe if you record for 60 days on the 60th day, uh, it's actually more similar to day 57 or to day 42 or to day three. And so you can use this kind of matching to basically the calibration of the system you can, you know, load from uh, these uh, these previous days. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of thing that people do. Uh, other times people will do things like load, just, just fit a giant model that concatenate, that concatenates uh, across uh, every day. Mm -hmm. And then maybe they'll have like a readout head and they say that, well, there's some intermediate layer. And from that intermediate layer, I shouldn't be able to read out uh, the identity of the day, right? So what do you mean by identity of the day? Okay, so to translate that into like maybe more common problem in, in statistics, mm -hmm. it's the problem of de-identification, right? So if I have some model that predicts, um, that try to, to predict a person's uh, credit score from, you know, various data, mm -hmm. it's very easy for uh, demographic information to sneak in through the back door, basically, and to make its way into how the score is predicting things. Yeah. So uh, I'm sure you've uh, you've heard of this. So you might have some automatic um, system that determines a person's credit mm -hmm. credit score, and they'll use a person's address and how long they've been at that address. Mm -hmm. And that's correlated to zip oh, code and okay. zip code is correlated to race, for instance. Right. So basically your credit score model is becomes racist automatically. Right. Just from the Exactly. Yeah. It does, uh, it does profiling. Mm -hmm. So one way to, to, and this is a real problem in, in mm -hmm. real life. And, um, and uh, so if you want to read about this problem, I think like these are like really the important problems in, taking machine learning models and putting them in the in the real world, yeah. making sure that they don't reinforce biases. Yeah. But the thing is, I mean, when there's multiple steps of the way like that, mm -hmm. it's very easy to, lo to lose track of provenance and, uh, and that the model has all these biases, you might not even know about it. Right. So one way to, to do that is instead of, of uh, basically censoring race, for instance, mm -hmm. in, a, in a predictive model, uh, but there might be other ways in which things which are correlated with race enter into into the model. Mm -hmm. What you might do instead is have a layer inside of the of the model, and that um, where you try to predict uh, race, mm -hmm. right? And if you can't, then you can infer that the information that goes through this bottleneck layer does not contain information about race. Does that make sense? Can you say that again? Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, <laughs> this is a bit of a this is a bit of a complicated concept to mm -hmm. grasp. But like, uh, basically, the mutual information between the classification mm -hmm. of or the uh, or the regression, you know, if you're talking about credit score and a person's demographic characteristics. Mm -hmm. And I use race as an example. Yeah. It could be gender. It could be something like uh, sexual orientation, mm -hmm. all these things that, yeah. you know, are protected. So we want the mutual information between the intermediate representation and which is going to be used to make the classification mm -hmm. and the, the, sorry, the mutual information between that demographic characteristics 
and the outcome to be zero, mm -hmm. like that you couldn't infer back oh, just from okay. the classification of the model, right. basically uh, a person's demographic characteristics. Mm -hmm. So one way to do that is you have some bottleneck layer which contains all of the data, and then basically you try to adversarially predict the, the back predict the demographic characteristics mm -hmm. from the data. Yeah. So if you've correctly factored out the demographic data, mm -hmm. you shouldn't be able to read out uh, the information, the, yeah. the demographic information. Right. So that's uh, that's uh, that's one approach. And I, I don't want to make uh, it, this is not my area of specialty, and mm -hmm. I don't want to make light of the subject. But I encourage people uh, to read deeper into it, yeah. into this these uh, de identification or um, or debiasing uh, techniques, which are mm -hmm. uh, very important. Yeah. But you can imagine that you can use a, a similar system right. in order to factor out, um, for instance, the day that you did the, the recording. Mm -hmm. If you can't measure out and infer the day, then that means that the representation that you learn uh, is kind of independent of the day. Yeah. Right? In the same way that your credit score representation is going to be independent of a person's demographics. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, um, also from the article you sent me about this uh, brain-computer interface, um, it, it says it's uh, basically... Focusing on design, evaluate novel neuroimaging method based on optical, radio frequency, ultrasound, and other entirely non-invasive approaches. Is this the main difference compared to Neuralink? Because you mentioned there is like a little wire. I, I'm trying to read uh, oh, to, to read yeah, this so information. Oh, yeah. So my notes is basically is it is the uh, the Facebook Reality Lab uh, is this mostly about. Uh, non-invasive approach is this the kind of the novel thing yeah absolutely i mean a lot of companies right now are uh, focusing on invasive technologies yeah. right or we might talk about minimally invasive technologies so some of them are include things like uh having electrodes inside of the motor cortex but making them so that the electrodes are far away from uh the um the blood vessels. So that's Neuralink's thing, right? Because they have these microwires yeah. and they have this robot surgeon and they, you know, moving away from arteries mm -hmm. so you have less bleeding. Um, you can have something like what uh, Paradromics does. They're in Austin, Texas, and they do like massively parallel recordings. Um, so that's another kind of approach. You have companies like, um, I forget the name of the company, but they market this uh, this device, which is called the Stentrode, mm -hmm. which is basically a it's an electrode that you put inside of a blood vessel and then you in the same way that you can put a stent in your heart you can yeah. put a stent way up there and basically records uh local uh information mm -hmm. and that's pretty minimally invasive because you don't have to have a brain surgery right but all these approaches are fundamentally like much more invasive than putting on a helmet right mm -hmm. and that like that's the ideal uh, case scenarios you would just want to put out put on a helmet and would be able to read the uh, the activity of your brain uh, to arbitrary accuracy um, so really uh, the novelty here is to be able to do this kind of thing uh, just totally outside of the brain mm -hmm. but of course it's a uh, it's a it's a very ambitious and very difficult goal um, and I think a big challenge when you're in an industrial environment and you have these incredibly ambitious goals is to reduce these ambitious goals to practice 
uh, in ways where you can show milestones on a continuous basis, right? So maybe your company, they have like a big shindig every year, right? So they have like some big meetup and that's when the top company brass will be able to see the, uh, the outcome of these different skunk horse projects, for mm. instance. And so being able to reduce the, um, these very complicated uh, projects and to put them into milestone-based uh, things so that people can see the effective progress, that's the real challenge. I think over time, you know, we will absolutely be able to see like this vision that we have that we'll be able to read all brain information at like almost perfect accuracy. Yeah. There's nothing in the laws of physics that says that it's impossible. It will almost certainly happen. But the, 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 the problematic is to be able to, you know, demonstrate that at, uh, at a consistent uh, rate over time so that, um, you know, people see the, uh, the, the progress over time. Yeah. Um, so when you work at Facebook in a lab, it's, is it similar to your research um, as a postdoc? What is the, the difference? Between- no, <laughs> it is very, very different. Yeah. Um, so what I realized, so I thought, you know, after going to, to Google and staying there for a long time, uh, I thought that I understood what um, what industry was. Mm-hmm. And, um, and of course, having been an academic for a long time, I thought that I knew what uh, academia was. And then when I came to Facebook Reality Labs, I realized that there is a third way, which is very, very different, right? Which is um, industrial research. It functions on totally different principles than um, industry development, mm-hmm. right? So if you're shipping, if you already have a product and you're just like trying to ship improvements upon it, it's a very different thing than developing a new product. It's a very different thing than developing a prototype of a product. It's a very different thing than to demonstrate a proof of concept that you will be able to come up with a prototype that will yeah. eventually make it into a product. Mm-hmm. So um, it's very, it's more researchy. But the key, I think, in all of these cases, and this took me a very long time to really grasp, is to be able to take your incredibly ambitious vision Mm -hmm. and split it down into little boxes that you can chew and making sure that uh, basically you've you've addressed the things where you have the most uncertainty about first, right? So if you're building a product uh, and you're shipping it, Maybe the thing that you want to do now is to maximize your metrics right now, right? So like maybe you want to increase your revenue as much as possible or maybe increase the number of users of your app Mm -hmm. as fast as possible. In a research setting, what you want is to reduce the uncertainty about your project Mm -hmm. as fast as possible and understanding that like the the value of just information is um it's very, it's a lot harder to quantify yeah and uh you know necessarily it's a different environment to be mm-hmm. in but once you understand that you can really thrive in that environment but it's important that like you know if you're thinking in terms of you know KPIs and ship dates and 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 that it's very different kind of mindset than when yeah. you're in the industrial research environment right yeah, thanks for sharing that. And going back to the challenge with data, so I, I n- never worked with a, a neuron data before. And then um, my assumptions is the sample you collect from individuals are kind of limited. Um, 
and then you you might resample from their actions. So I know for different individuals, how our brain works are largely similar, but still everybody have uh, you know some differences in their brain. So was it difficult to combine? So let me ask you a question. Okay, is my blue your blue? Is there blue my blue? Maybe I don't know. Exactly, we will never know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, this is, of course, like the classic question about yeah. like whether our percepts are, are similar. Right. So actually, the uh, the ratio of blue cones to red cones to green cones is very idiosyncratic from one person yeah. uh, to the other. So we do see colors a little bit different from mm -hmm. uh, from one to the other. So that's like the classic neurosciences answer is <laughs> it depends. Uh, yes and no. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there are there is a lot of individual variation. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to doing invasive brain-computer interfaces, I really want to, you know, say to people that it's possible. People have done it, right? They've been able to record from motor cortex, and you're able to do things like control cursors with your yeah. mind, control robotic devices mm -hmm. uh, with your mind. But the number of people uh, that have been able to do this is in the double digits, mm -hmm. right? This is not uh, this is not like consumer neuroscience. Yeah. It's not a million people that have this. Um, so the um, um, I'm forgetting the uh, the name, but there's a, a famous uh, research project that um, uh, the not the brain initiative. I'm sorry, I'm uh, having a bit of a uh, uh, of a brain problem right now. <laughs> Um, but there's a there's been an ongoing uh, research project for a long time doing uh, motor rehabilitation or motor VCI, mm -hmm. and uh, it's been ongoing for 20 years. And there's been 30 people that have gone through this study that okay. have had uh, the implantation, and then now have like a um, uh, like a knob basically in which they can like plug themselves so they can plug themselves into the computer, mm -hmm. but it's 30 people, right? right? So like, how do you extrapolate from 30 people to right. a million people? Yeah. So I think our best tool to understand how uh, neuroanatomy changes from people to people is uh, large, uh, is our large scale projects and they're largely non-invasive, mm -hmm. right? So there's, um, a project which is called, uh, I think it's from the UK, which is called um, the Human Connectome Project or HCP. And I think they're trying to scan something like 10,000 brains, mm -hmm. right, to figure out what's the difference in between the connections of one person uh, versus another person. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of these challenges where, uh, and if there's brain atlases, of course. So, you know, I did my PhD at the Montreal Neuro. There's an atlas which is called the MNI Atlas, which mm -hmm. is the Montreal Neurological Institute Atlas, which was started there. Uh, but now there's larger and larger atlases, and they're basically, uh, you know, ways of, uh, of looking at uh, anatomic uh, variation in, uh, in different people. Mm -hmm. And there's anatomic variation, and then there's, um, and there's functional variations, right? So very briefly, uh, my blue is not necessarily your, your blue. Right. Yeah. And uh, are, do you have a specific um, procedure to hand, handle the, you know, the heterogeneity problems? 
uh, or do you have some assumptions that most of the time, you know, for example, I'm going to raise my hand, it's going to be the same region light up on the image? Yeah, so there's different ways of, uh, of attacking this problem. They're kind of similar in flavor to the, to the day problem that I was uh, oh, telling you okay. apart, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I, was, I was telling you before in that you want representations which factor out like what day you did the recording on, but you also want to have uh, representations which factor out like which person specifically yeah. uh, was actually uh, doing uh, the experiment. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, that's one way to do it. In the fMRI world, um, so functional ma magnetic resonance imaging, so people ins go inside this big magnet and we're measuring, uh, you know, this radio frequency precession uh, inside their brands to be able to figure out mm -hmm. in each little volume, like how much uh, extra um, brain activity they have. And so in this world, there are very well uh, established methods, um, things that are made uh, for, uh, that are for functional alignment, in which case it's basically like a non-rigid alignment problem. Mm -hmm. You have functional alignments, you have hybrid methods, you have things which are called like um, uh, hyper alignment uh, which you know tries to learn a uh, like a percutaneous uh, rotation from yeah. one to the uh, from from one to the other. Mm -hmm. There, these are basically unsupervised um, uh, or semi-supervised learning problems. Yeah, and uh, so the methods are are pretty well established in the fMRI literature, where they have the possibility of having large-scale data sets. Mm -hmm. um, when it's uh, invasive in humans, it's it's much less so. And when it's uh, non-invasive but not fMRI, uh, the methods are also not as um, as well developed. Um, you know, primarily because uh, you know the spatial resolution of non-invasive methods outside of fMRI mm -hmm. is uh, is pretty low. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. You can be like, well, you know, you're <laughs> so if you put your helmet on and your helmet is like a centimeter off, but the resolution is like three centimeters, mm -hmm. then it doesn't really matter that much. Yeah. Uh, right. So um, in the EEG world, it's not as common as uh, in the fMRI world. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. It's kind of fascinating to think about it because when you think about processing images um, and or text, it's a deep learning problem kind of falling to the big data category. But when we think about the actual um, sample from, say, 30 people, it's actually another small data problem. It's like a combination of small data and uh, big data. You're dealing with different type of uh, um, variances. Um, what are some challenges, you know, using deep learning on those type of data? Well, I think you named them very well. Uh, if you have giant data sets and then on the input side, and then your labels are very, very sparse, which is typically yeah. the case with human behavior, right. then you have a huge data bottleneck. Mm -hmm. So I think some of the most interesting approaches are methods like unsupervised uh, learning for this, mm -hmm. um, and things like self-supervised methods, for instance. Um, so uh, in the self-supervised world, I mean, there's been a... Uh, a kind of a, a Cambrian explosion in the last three years yeah. of people really uh, focusing on on uh, self-supervised methods. So uh, maybe for your uh, for the for the people at home, we can uh, say a little bit about self-supervised sure. methods. Yeah. Um, so a classic problem in image recognition is ImageNet, right? So you have a million images. There's a thousand different labels. And you're trying to create a map from each image to the labels. Mm -hmm. 
Um, the problem is that, uh, you know, in there, in, in some data sets, uh, you don't have that much labeled data, right? right? You might have far more unlabeled data than you would ever have labeled data. So can you create a method that is able to read information and uh, it's able to uh, to use the uh, the data distribution mm -hmm. in order to create like kind of good representations, but without image labels, right? Right. But images are uh, have have all sorts of wacky properties. Uh, so, for instance, if I have a label, so let's say that I'm here, and I'm here, <laughs> I am the same person. Are right? you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> in my in my four dimensional manifold of uh, <laughs> X Y Z and T, yes, I am the um, the same person. Uh, so that means I I I have there's a pseudo label there, yeah. right? So if you take like two snapshots of mm -hmm. us together, they represent like the same reality. Right. And so I can say, well, I don't know what the actual label is for these uh, for for these two uh, you know blobs, <laughs> but. <laughs> regardless they're they're a positive example of yeah. something whereas if i take the camera and i point it at some other random place you could say well that's a negative example mm -hmm. so you can create these artificial data sets or like these virtual batches which are for instance contain different translations to uh, contain different uh, color schemes contain different uh, scalings rotations etc and those are your positive labels and then you can say everything else like random samples that are outside of of these uh, this picture of us uh, is going to be the negative examples mm -hmm. and then the goal of uh, the training is to find some representation in which you can tell these things apart yeah so uh, if you learn things that way and there's a lot of of uh of different uh, methods to um to do this uh uh that uh, i've come online like um uh, simclear and moco and uh there's uh, also related semi-supervised methods or multimodal methods like clip uh so, which you you may have uh, have heard about um, so all of these are, are based on this premise of uh, same, same, but different, but still same, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like these two things are kind of the same. Mm -hmm. They're a little bit different, but they're kind of the same. And so you basically apply pseudo labels. And then over time, if you, if you present a lot of data to these, uh, to these models, they're able to essentially cluster together images, which come from the same data distribution mm -hmm. and cluster away uh, other things. And that means that they've learned, uh, essentially image class, uh, for free. So then you can use, uh, the, this precious labeled data, yeah. but not for, you know, learning the representations just for learning, uh, the, uh, the mapping from this, uh, representation mm -hmm. to, uh, class labels. And so, for instance, if I do like radiography, yeah. right, or if I do like my wife does uh, OCT, mm -hmm. right, so she does retina scans, uh, and uh, so you know, getting ophthalmologists to label uh, scans and yeah. then say like this is uh, like this is this part of the eye and this is this other part of the eye, it's very expensive, mm -hmm. right? You can't do that on um, on standard labeling platforms, right? So you have to have like these very expensive experts that uh, that label this stuff getting the data itself is uh, is really expensive so if you want to label data set there's no way to get one 
for less than a million bucks, mm-hmm. right? So if you have some startup that's like, we're going to scan people's eyes, label it, and then, you know, figure out what's, uh, what's going on with their eye, it's like, it's impossible. Yeah. So what you can do instead is do something like self-supervised or unsupervised mm-hmm. learning. And then, you know, you just sprinkle a little bit of supervised data yeah. on top rather than, than using your precious, precious supervised data for learning the data distribution. Yeah. Um, have you heard of uh, Jan LeCun's uh, cake intuition or like his uh, no. cake metaphor? <laughs> so, okay. So Jan LeCun, of course, is mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, the director of uh, Facebook AI research. Yeah. Uh, he's been there for a long time. He's the guy that created uh, convolutional neural nets, uh, Turing Award winner, etc. And so the way that he likes to describe this is with the cake metaphor, right? So you have cake and the... Um, I mean, the cake itself, like the, 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 the gluten, you know, the, the flour based uh, thing inside, yeah. uh, that's like unsupervised learning, mm-hmm. right? There's just a lot of data that comes from the data distribution. Take one image, let's say it's 1024 by 768. Uh, when, it's, uh, when it's decompressed, that's uh, 3 million bytes of, uh, of data, mm. right? It's a lot of data. Yeah. Um, whereas, uh, when you go on top, uh, right? So he says the uh, the the the, the cremage, the <laughs> I guess like the uh, what's the sweet stuff that you uh, that you put on cake, the frosting, the frosting. <laughs> Sorry, it's just you know living in in Montreal, my brain is uh, is is eighty uh, percent French now. <laughs> um, so the frosting uh, uh, on top of the cake is uh, that's the equivalent of supervised learning, mm. right? Um, so for ImageNet, for instance, the labels. Uh, well, think what log two of a million is, right? So that is, I think it's like 20 bits of information per label. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, you have three megabytes per picture for the unsupervised, right? For the data distribution, but for your labels are only 20 bits. So that's, which is not very good, Mm. right? Um, Okay, so that's a, so that's an example where um, where there's a real mismatch uh, in that. And he says, uh, well, reinforcement learning that's the cherry on top because mm. reinforcement learning, you know, your rewards are going to be so incredibly sparse. Yeah, they you, you know you can have events in your life which are rewarding and which will happen literally only once in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I, I got married. Uh, so that's an example of like something that was very rewarding and for mm-hmm. which I have like exactly one example. Yeah. And I hope to keep it at one example. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. This, that sounds like the um, self-supervised uh, learning can works pretty well in the situation where you have a lot of labels and some of them are a little bit like similar or ambiguous to yeah 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 exactly so you can find good representations of data uh, without requiring very tedious and very expensive uh, labeling mm-hmm. so people are using them more and more uh, both in um, human neuroscience and for applications and also just for uh, for research so i think that that's an area of research where definitely like the space is wide open uh, for people that want to come in and, and learn a little bit more about this. I wrote a blog post about unsupervised learning methods mm-hmm. that also includes a very, very short segment on self-supervised yeah. learning uh, on, uh, on my blog. Mm-hmm. That I wrote that a year ago, and since then, there's been a lot of research. Even on it. It's a very like fruitful area of research. If you want to get in there 
and you're like, I like self-supervised learning, but I think the field is saturated. I've got news for you. You can apply this, your, uh, your knowledge to, uh, to neural data science, and that would be really useful. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, so now um, with self-supervised learning, you're able to um, you know, do some classification. Um, and then for this research project, do you have any preference on false positive, false negative? Which one do you dislike more? <laughs> that's a very uh that's a very good question i think that people uh generally for research projects don't do so much like they don't they want to show like the raw results yeah. like here's how much variance i mm -hmm. accounted for in my right. data or um but people haven't like necessarily been thinking too much about how do you tune these uh, uh, uh these things very yeah. well so you know very uh um, there's been a long history in uh, re uh, neuroscience research mm -hmm. of using uh, the ROC curve yeah. and the area under the curve in particular, mm -hmm. okay. which um, basically like <laughs> the, de the decision is not to have a decision, yeah. uh, essentially. But clearly, if you care about applications, like if you're uh, like in another field of, uh, of health research, you know, if you're looking at diagnostics, po false positive right. and false negatives are very important. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. And then um, when we think about um, wearing a helmet and then detect um, some actions uh, based on you know signals from our brain, uh, how, I don't know whether this research has been in production. Like, do we need to think about the latency of the processing? Like, how fast the model run to have inference? Yeah. Uh, so that's a very interesting question. Um, I, I recently looked into the kinds of accelerators that you can get for, for uh, you know, um, on-chip uh, computer vision, yeah. right? And uh, it's really quite amazing the, uh, uh, the amount of uh, operations for seconds that you can get for, you know, a couple hundred bucks now. Yeah. Um, uh, truly remarkable compared to even five years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that in terms of latency... Um, yeah, of course, uh, latency matters for humans, but you have to understand that uh, we have a little bit of leeway that comes mm -hmm. from the fact that humans are naturally latent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so humans yeah. have latency, right? So um, if you think about, well, okay, let me, let me uh, make you like a little uh, guessing question. Okay. Uh, if uh, I step on your foot, how mm -hmm. much time do you think it takes for the information to get to your brain? Uh, I don't know, uh, 10 milliseconds, but Is now it? after a sip of wine, maybe 20. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so it's interesting because the speed of propagation, mm -hmm. you know, it really depends on, the, on the neuron, but for these longest neurons in our body, which in my case would be about two meters, uh, it could take about a hundred milliseconds for oh, a signal to actually, okay. yeah, which is a long time, right? Yeah. That would be like three frames in a 30 frames per okay. second video. Yeah. Um, so it is uh, quite long. Uh, nature has found ways to make neurons, which are a little bit faster. Mm -hmm. So, uh, one of my favorite, you know, stories about, uh, about neuroscience is that a lot of the research that, you know, a lot of the reason why we know so much about neurons now is, uh, about is because of this creature called the squid. Mm. Right, which is a marine creature, yeah. and the squid has this uh, thing which is called a giant axon. Mm -hmm. now, I want to be clear; it's not the axon of a giant squid. 
there is such a thing as a giant squid and it's terrifying. Yeah. Uh, don't look it up online. It will, uh, you won't be able to sleep <laughs> for a long time. Uh, so there, but even small squids have yeah. this thing called a giant axon. Mm-hmm. And the reason is that, you know, these, uh, um, these creatures, uh, they like to escape, you know? Mm-hmm. So if they see like a big shark, they're going to be like, okay, I need to get the heck out of here yeah. as fast as possible. So what I just told you about, you know, the delay from my foot to, mm-hmm. uh, to my brain, if I have to wait 100 milliseconds for my foot to start moving, right. I'm already dead, you know, if I'm <laughs> yeah. in front of a shark. Yeah. So the way that they solve this is they have this super, super fast uh, uh, neuron and the, uh, with, uh, with an axon, which has a lot of myelination and it's huge. It's, you can see it with a visible eye. You know, like the stuff inside of our brains, you can't just like look at it and be like, oh, I, I can see the neurons. That's not how it works. You know, they're tiny. But these guys have these huge, huge, huge neurons. And it turns out that the bigger the neuron, the faster it actually propagates the information. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Bigger the neuron, you're talking about the size of the neuron? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it just turns out that the math uh, comes out this way. So yeah. if you're, um, if you know a little bit about uh, electrical engineering, you know, it's the same reason why, you, you know, big, big wires um, that it can uh, can support, you know, mm-hmm. a higher voltage or like a higher impre- uh, um, amount of current uh, than uh, than smaller wires. So it turns out that because it's so easy to look at this uh, at this big, big neuron, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the early research on how neurons work were done right. in this uh, in this model. And so we owe it to squid that we actually understand our, our brains. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you, like the, uh, we learned something from squid. So probably that explains why, you know, you have a more complex to kind of, um, neural network, I don't know, um, structure or when the dimension is higher i mean it's not necessarily useful for every use case but if you're processing very complicated data you know you you do need more layers or a bigger network um yeah 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 absolutely um i think that one thing that uh, the people will are uh, like might be aware of is that you know when jan lacun worked on as uh um, you know, came up with the convolutional neural mm-hmm. net. Yeah. He was inspired a lot by some neuroscience research, yeah. right? So knowledge about the visual system and how it, you know, does these different kinds of selectivity mm-hmm. and uh, invariance operations. And from that, you know, created these layers of yeah. selectivity and then uh, max pooling uh, in order to, to create like that basic structure of the mm-hmm. CNN. If you look at the brain, uh, like an actual visual brain, maybe the number of layers is only like 10, uh, you know, yeah. you could argue or six or whatever, but they're recurrent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it turns out if you unroll it, then it actually ends up being lots of lots and lots of, uh, of different layers. So uh, <laughs> that being said, for the purpose of, you know, industrial applications, like what kind of latency are you talking about? So if you're doing something like motor um like you're trying to control a, a motor arm, like the latency basically determines your your spec, right? Mm-hmm. If if it takes if it takes the the signal 100 milliseconds to get to the muscles, and then the muscles themselves, you know, they're not instantaneous, right? I yeah. mean, they the muscles are because I mean, this is all like this all has weight, yeah. <laughs> right? So um, so 
that means that you're not like that much limited by latency mm -hmm. because it's going to be faster than a human would be able to do with their own arm anyways. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's remarkable how much we're able to accomplish, despite the fact that we have such <laughs> large, uh, you know, we yeah we're, we're starting like way behind the uh, the 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 start, and yet mm -hmm. uh, you know we end up uh, like pretty far off in the uh, on the finish line. Yeah, um, is mentioned is mass uh, max pulling also inspired by the brain or neuroscience absolutely absolutely so there's this fun thing uh that happens in our in our brains that was discovered uh by uh, hubel and weasel so the research i was talking to you about uh you know about the squid mm -hmm. that was one uh set of nobel prize winners i'm going to talk about another set of nobel prize winners yeah. uh, who are uh, david hubel and, and torsten weasel mm -hmm. uh, but they looked at different neurons inside of the visual cortex and what they found is that you have these neurons which uh, if you present, let's say, uh, a white um, line, they're really going to respond uh, very strongly. And others like uh, black lines, mm -hmm. right? And that have the same orientation. So let's say like vertical lines. Yeah. Well, it turns out that there's neurons which like both white lines and black lines. It doesn't matter what the... Um, um, what the actual um, contrast is, mm -hmm. right? As long as it's it's uh, it's more contrast con contrastful than the uh, than the background, and they don't uh, and they don't care whether it's uh, it goes from white to black or black to white. Uh, they just like the uh, the orientation, and these are called the complex cells. So this combination of simple cells, which have a thresholding operation, which is similar to a ReLU. And complex cells, which have this pooling operation, mm -hmm. which is similar to a max pooling, oh. creates the kinds of selectivity mm -hmm. that we see in uh, the visual cortex. Now, that was the, um, the insight that both led to, well, one of the insights that led to the Nobel Prize in, um, in, uh, in physiology or medicine for, uh, for Jubel and Weasel. And it also led to the insights of Yana Kuhn with the CNN, which then led to a Turing Award. Uh, so, you know, learning about the brain can be yeah. <laughs> can be a good career move. I guess yeah, that's a, really interesting. So yeah. you also mentioned about the activation functions. Are those all also inspired by how the neurons like? Uh... Well, it's very uh, it's a very interesting question. So if you look historically, um, I think the first example was the perceptron. Right, and the perceptron is basically a step function, mm -hmm. which is, as you know, is a terrible activation function. So it turns out that if you take a step function and then you put a little bit of noise, because we know that neurons are very noisy, right? Yeah, they they yeah. integrate information and they have a lot of noise that comes from just the transmission of synapses and the fact that it's, like I said, you know, it's in a squishy environment yeah. and, <laughs> and all these things. Um, so if you look at that. Uh, you basically take the uh, this uh, threshold function and then you nudge it randomly from left to right. Mm -hmm. So what you're going to get is... Activation. Yeah, yeah. So the activation, if you like just nudge it left to right and mm -hmm. it was originally a step function and then you convolve it basically with the noise, Yeah. what are you going to get? A signal... It's a sigmoid. Oh, sigmoid. Right? So instead of having like the pure threshold, you're going to get like a smooth, oh. uh, a smooth version mm -hmm. of, uh, of the same. Yeah. So the actual, 
the uh, the actual answer that you get if you have Gaussian noise is the error function, mm-hmm. right? The earth, right? Which is yeah. just the 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 the, the cumulative distribution, the, the CDF of, mm-hmm. uh, of a Gaussian, right? Um, so for a long time, people made deep neural nets that had sigmoid functions mm-hmm. because they were like, well, that's probably what's, uh, yeah. what's going on inside the brain. But uh, later on, there, there's been a lot of research on the kinds of activations functions that are actually implemented in visual mm-hmm. cortex. And it's a little bit more tricky than that. And uh, in fact, now we tend to use basically smoothed ReLUs to, uh, to, uh, to model single neurons uh, inside of the visual cortex. Yeah. So they still have like kind of a linear uh, effect. And then the saturation like doesn't really come into play. And it turns out that the saturation is really bad for neural networks um, because it makes training uh, much less stable, right? Because you have like these flat places inside of the gradient. So yeah um it's one case in which if you follow the neuroscience um in a very uh literal fashion you can be led astray because it turns out that it's a lot better to use uh relus and and other functions which don't saturate yeah Hmm. that's very interesting what are some other um inspirations in deep learning research that originally from neuroscience uh that's a very good question there's a great um there's a great review article from demis asabas from a few years ago and he also made the argument that reinforcement learning was originally inspired by the uh by the brain yeah right like this idea that we can essentially learn from reward uh, and then um, you know use it to change our mm-hmm. our behavior is was originally inspired by some of the research in uh, uh, in neuroscience so I think it's historically interesting but I do want to be very careful that the people at home uh, <laughs> you know that you don't need to know a ton about neuroscience in order to make a good uh, like a good model that's going to be useful for a neuroscience application mm-hmm. area. Uh, but just learning the principles uh, so that you can speak the same language is, I, I think that'll get you 90% of the way there. Yeah. And also help you get some intuition of those, um, you know, the math, the formulas, um, to help you tell the story when you uh, learn a new algorithm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, so, uh, so what I was saying about, uh, you know, working when you're working in an interdisciplinary team, mm-hmm. I think we talked about this in the pre-interview. Yeah. Um, when you're working in the, in the interdisciplinary team, mm-hmm. like if you're trying to build a neurotechnology, yeah. uh, application, you're going to work with people that are going to have a bunch of different specialties. You're going to have mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, you're going to have, um, software engineers, you're going to have neuroscientists, uh, neurologists, uh, uh, maybe you're going to have ophthalmologists, who knows, right? Yeah. You could have a, a bunch of different people are all working on the same problem. And I think the first order of business is just to get all of these people talking the same language. Mm-hmm. So I will tell you a thing that I, uh, that I did at Facebook and you might think that it's a little bit extreme. Okay, but okay. <laughs> hear me out. Um, so I, uh, so there was a, a neuroscientist uh, on the team, and she was a speech uh, expert, right? So she was an expert on how the brain processes uh, speech and then translate it into, mm-hmm. you know, waves that we do with our throats. So before my first day, I looked 
up her uh, PhD thesis, and I read it from from cover to cover. Oh wow! Yeah, two hundred pages. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I and I think that that uh, made it so that it, it was just a lot easier to to talk to each other. Yeah. Even though it was you know it was a bit of a slog at first because mm-hmm. it's very unfamiliar area yeah. for uh, for me. But uh, I took the time when I did the interviews, actually, to read a single paper from every person that interviewed me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that helped uh, ultimately in my quest to create a common knowledge, right? Yeah. Like a common knowledge base where we mm-hmm. could all talk to each other. Now, I've had the, uh, the incredible experience in my career um, of working on a lot of different problems which have almost nothing to do with each other. Yeah. But... So I think that that's my superpower, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you've heard about the concept of a T-shaped person. No. So the the idea is that you can you can be a person who's hyper hyper specialized mm-hmm. in one area. Yeah. Right. Um, like uh, one of my early mentors at uh, at Google was mentioning a friend of his who is an expert in bidirectional text, mm-hmm. right? In bidi. So if you're mixing, uh, for instance, English and, um, and Hebrew in the same page, there's all these wacky rules for how you can do it because, you know, Hebrew is right to left and English is left to right. And it's very complicated, the rendering stack. And he's the world expert in that one thing. There are other people who are, so that's a, somebody that has like depth, mm. uh, but there are other people that have breadth. Uh, so they just, uh, uh, jack of all trades, master of none. Uh, so they just learn a little bit about everything yeah. and they just seem to be able to do a lot, uh, of, uh, of different things. The ideal place to be, I think in your career is to be a T-shaped person. Uh, so basically you have a lot of breath, mm-hmm. but you have a deep specialty, Right. And so if people ask you, like, but what's your, but what do you actually do? Like, what's your real specialty? Mm-hmm. I can say I'm at the very intersection of neuroscience and AI. Yeah. Those are the two things that I'm, I'm good at, and specifically that, that intersection. And, you know, in that intersection, there's really not a whole lot of people. There's maybe like 100 people in the world that, yeah. like, really care deeply about this, uh, this, this set of topics. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's your, that's your death right there. So if you have this setup. Um, you can both work cross-functionally across, you know, talking with people that have other kinds of disciplines as you, right? If you have a lot of depth but no breath, then uh, something like being a consultant, I think, is, is, uh, is a good option, right? So like a, like a, let's say like a corporate lawyer is like the perfect example, somebody mm-hmm. that has like a lot of, of depth right. and that might not know about your particular problem and might not particularly care. But they will have like a lot of, of death and it's a perfect uh, occasion to be like kind of a consultant. But if you're working on these like multidisciplinary, multifunctional cross yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, cross team uh, uh, projects, you have to be shaped like you have to be T-shaped. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and uh, so one of, of my big functions when I was there is to build that bridge between, you know, people maybe from a physics background or from electrical engineering background, mm-hmm. a mechanical engineering background. So we can all like speak about the same language. And I realized that maybe the most useful thing that I could do is not spend all day in Jupyter Notebook. Mm-hmm. 
right? Which I like. <laughs> Maybe it's not spending uh, all day in Jupyter Notebook yeah. or, or uh, pushing a lot of, uh, of code, but maybe it's just sitting down and doing the same kind of thing that I'm, that I'm doing right now, like explain right. things. Um, it, like, what are we, like, what are we trying to do? How are we going to do it to different people that might not have the same vocabulary as you? And so always being able to bring back your intense and kind of mapping it to a person's background, I mm -hmm. think is, uh, that's a superpower. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, I think, um, I, yeah, I like the, the T-ship. I think, as you explained, I probably heard it before. And I used to think, um, should we become an I first and then grow to a T or you grow the, you know, the horizontal line and then go deep. And I actually have seen people uh, from both ways, right? Some people deeply specialize and then they venture into um, other area. The benefit of that is you build a kind of a credibility in one industry and then it's easier for you to uh, network, again, leverage when you get into another industry. And some people will be like, oh, I just want to be a generalized, a, a generalist. I don't, I'm not really sure what I want to do. And then, but they keep going, they keep exploring. And then one day they find something they're really interested in, and then they go deeper in that. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I think like a great place to explore is when you're in college. <laughs> and if you're like me, you can stay in college until you're well into your 30s. Yeah. Uh, highly recommend it to everyone. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm being facetious, of course. But uh, that's a great place to kind of explore, mm -hmm. right? Because you have a lot of, liberally, uh, of, of liberty. And um, my PhD advisor told me, uh, you should take a lot of classes now you know, during my PhD, yeah. you should take a lot of classes now because you have to realize that you will never be able to do that again ever in your life. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so um, in addition to taking classes in neuroscience and computational neuroscience, you know, this is, uh, um, which was the natural thing to do, of course, at the time. I also took classes in computer vision, mm -hmm. very different era of computer vision, by the way. Right, because we're talking about like 2008, 2009, yeah. so it wasn't deep net. Nobody it would was connect classic. those two things together. Yeah. Um, and machine learning, which mm -hmm. again was classical machine learning, Bayesian stuff. Uh, it wasn't deep learning yet. Yeah. But having this basis was super uh, uh, useful in um, in building uh, my career. Mm -hmm. It turns out that that machine learning class is probably the most useful class I've ever taken. Yeah. Right. That and linear algebra mm -hmm. when I was in my first year of undergrad. Yeah. But you don't know, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So exploring uh, across a bunch of different areas is, uh, is, is quite useful. The other thing that I would say is if you want to give yourself the chance to explore, you first have to put in the hard work and learning the hard disciplines in order to be able to, 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 to give yourself the power to do that, yeah. right? So it's so much harder to learn linear algebra um, after you've gone to your whole undergrad and you've gone to business school and you're in industry and you're like, I wanna be a data scientist and let me learn linear algebra. That's so much harder than learning it when you're an undergrad, when you have all the time in the world to yeah. think about this stuff and you're like, wait, do I, is it, do I take like a row and multiply by a column mm -hmm. or do I take a column and multiply by a row? Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so I would say 
go into the most mathy discipline that you can as an undergrad and you can always go to business school later on in your life it's fine uh and there's never going to be a time that's better than your early 20s to like really do uh, math stuff mm -hmm. you can always do it later but it's just you know if there's uh, people at, at home that are listening and they're kind of early on in their career or they're yeah. still in school or whatever just take all the math classes you can mm -hmm. you'll never regret it um and uh i i know that it's kind of ironic because some people grow to hate math with a passion yeah um but uh it's so useful in um in the future um and it's just a lot easier to learn when you're young yeah thanks for sharing that and i think it's really awesome that you're in the intersection of neuroscience and machine learning so have you seen any um influence on the neuroscience research that kind of derived from deep learning research like oh, oh absolutely uh we're in a golden age of that <laughs> right now uh so that's been and it's been wonderful to uh, to, to see that yeah at the end of my phd in 2013 i i spent most of the year inside of theano uh, so you might know about theano it was the precursor to tensorflow and well <laughs> not the precursor but a uh, an early uh, an early framework yeah. uh, in um, in deep learning uh, that preceded tensorflow and then pytorch and it was kind of a pain to work with at the time and it was you know kind of buggy and it mm. gave bad error messages and it was still the days where i remember very well you know i i had a discussion with uh, a grad student at berkeley who was working on similar problems than me and uh and i was telling him that i was training a, a deep net and that was very hard because who knew how to do that back then yeah and he told me oh you know what's uh, what's really good and like replace your sigmoids by relus and i was like really should i do that uh -huh. and it was like oh yeah it totally helps like you should see this stuff like it's gonna converge so fast you're never gonna you're never gonna believe it yeah uh and he was like oh you know when you do like your gradient descent like you really want to normalize things and i was like really should i do that that sounds kind of hacky <laughs> and so i learned a lot actually like at that time yeah. you know because there's a lot of stuff in deep learning that mm -hmm. doesn't make a whole lot of sense and it's just a purely empirical right so which you have to learn um you know true like deep and, and terrifying experience mm -hmm. um so that takes a long time and uh, so i was happy to be at the at the start of that but then later on um and so i should say that at that time that wasn't a popular thing to do right and i kind of abandoned that project like right uh right when i was coming out of my phd mm -hmm. uh i was like okay <laughs> i don't think that this deep learning thing is really working out like yeah. i don't think it's going to be like that important and i was talking to it it's so funny i i gave presentations at um you know society for neuroscience which is the big conference and mm -hmm. neuroscience about this stuff and people are like meh deep learning who what is even that like who cares <laughs> And, oh my God, like five years later, it was like everybody's all in yeah. on deep learning and, uh, and neuroscience. Uh, I think that this is, if people are, are, are wondering, like, is it a good time to learn neuroscience and AI and that mm -hmm. like intersection? It is absolutely the perfect time. We're in a Cambrian explosion of excitement about this. Uh, this is not, of course, the first podcast that I go on. Uh, a lot of people are excited about it. Yeah. Uh, so I, I got contacted by, you know, Yannick Kilcher, I think mm -hmm. recently, you know, telling him about this stuff. And I just think it's like, wow, you can learn about the brain 
but using it on your computer like yeah. neuroscience research research has never been accessible mm -hmm. before right because you had to have a big lab and, and and test tubes and all this stuff right but now it is everybody can do a little bit of neuroscience research at home yeah and that's just uh, to me uh, as a as a practitioner in the field it's just an incredible an incredible time to be alive um and um so it has helped us tremendously in neuroscience research. First, the tooling, right? So computational ethology is one uh, example. It's a, very, <laughs> it's a very complicated way of saying, looking at how uh, animals move as mm -hmm. a function of, uh, of time. So if I want to do something like understand the behavior of you know, lions in, in, uh, in a den in, uh, uh, somewhere in nature, uh, how am I going to do that? I'm going to use cameras, but then like, how do I track them over time? Mm -hmm. uh, but now with deep learning, I mean, we have semantic segmentation and that's much, much, much easier to do. And there's been tremendous amount of research because, you know, fundamentally, if you want to study the brain, you also have to study behavior and how we move and yeah. everything. And now people are doing both at the same time, doing brain and behavior. But so that's one way, but there's even, I think, even more influential uh, ways of, of thinking about the brain in terms of computers, which is we found that these CNNs, which were inspired by the brain, mm -hmm. are actually a lot like the brain, yeah. a lot more than we would expect by chance. Mm -hmm. um, and that's been, uh, so that uh, was first under, uh, understood around 2014. And this research has just exploded since then. Uh, now we're, at a point where we're kind of tiling every part of the brain like oh we don't really know about this like part of the visual stream boom now we have like an in silico model of uh of the brain for that region and for the hippocampus and for you know the dorsal visual stream and for frontal lobe and pretty pretty soon we'll have tiled the entire uh brain so it's a very exciting time yeah. So when you talk about the model, are you talking about um, some architecture similar to like the layers of CNN when you try to understand the brain? Yeah. So how do the different layers of uh, like a CNN relate uh, to the brain? Yeah. Um, so there's, there was this amazing research in 2014 looking at uh, how these different layers relate, uh, relate to the brain. So it turns out I was telling you earlier uh, about Jubel and Weasel's work, and that was really in primary visual cortex, which is kind of the first stop for the visual information. Um, it turns out that this kind of operation of selectivity and invariance uh, is done at multiple different stages inside mm -hmm. the brain. It's done at stage V2, at V4, and in the different subsets of, and in different subparts of area IT, which is the infrotemporal cortex. So, uh, you can think about it as a big, deep neural net, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, so what you would expect from that, if the brain is literally doing the same thing as a convolutional neural net, what would you expect from that? Mm -hmm. Well, that means that the first layer of the neural net should be like kind of like the eye. And the second layer should be kind of like the thalamus. And the third layer should be kind of like the primary visual cortex. And the, third and the fourth layer should be like V2 and, and so on and so forth, right? It should recapitulate the entire visual hierarchy. And so what people have found when studying, in particular, this set of visual areas that are selective for shape and objects is that they look a heck of a lot 
like what you would see in a CNN that's trained to solve object recognition. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you take a neural net that's trained for ImageNet, right? So to categorize a thousand images, uh, sorry, a million images into a thousand different categories, you look inside and you find that the lowest layers look like the lowest layers of the brain and the middle layers look like the middle parts mm -hmm. and the top layers look like the top part. And yeah. the variance accounted for is surprisingly high. Mm. Um, and it's only been getting better and better over the years. So to give people, a, I know that I'm, uh, I ramble a lot and <laughs> I've been talking for, uh, no, for a couple great. hours now. So originally people looked at what's inside the brain mm -hmm. to figure out what are the, the core operations that can create visual recognition. Jan LeCun looked at that and, and Fukushima before him and said, what if we implement this inside of a computer? Right. And then people implemented it inside of the computer so well that they're able to solve image recognition. That was the 2012 moment where ImageNet was first, quote unquote, mm -hmm. solved by, uh, by deep neural nets. And now people have taken this, this research on these in silico caricatures of the brain and reported back, like, do they actually look like the brain? And it turns out they do. Yeah. And that's super wow. exciting. Mm -hmm. Right. Because that means that now you have a model of the brain <laughs> and you know, what's, what sucks is doing neuroscience experiments. <laughs> like it really sucks. It takes a long time, you know, right. like just think about the mechanics of bringing, like, let's say it's an fMRI experiment, mm -hmm. right? You have to buy a $2 million scanner, mm. right? You have to have technicians which are paid 500 bucks an hour in order to, uh, to maintain it. You have to put inside people inside of this like very uh, loud enclosure that's like 110 dB of, uh, of noise and give them like noise canceling headphones. And they have to sit inside of this tiny box for two hours and absolutely not move, like move in less than half a millimeter. Yeah. I mean, it's just... It's terrible, right? If you can avoid that as much as possible, then you should do it. So now we have these models and, you know, uh, import torch vision is so much easier than like doing all this stuff with, uh, yeah. with functional magnetic uh, resonance imaging. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine a future where if I want like the best model of the brain, instead of having to scan somebody, um, I can just literally like download it off of GitHub. Yeah. Wow. That's so exciting. That's uh, it's super exciting. And it's teaching us a lot about mm -hmm. who we are as humans and, and what does it mean to be to be alive? And like all these these like wacky questions that the philosophers have had for, you know, the last twenty five hundred years, mm -hmm. you know, my blue, your blue. Yeah. <laughs> these kinds of these are the kinds of questions that now we can really start attacking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I uh, previously talked to a friend. He's a, a deep learning researcher, and uh, he has an interesting statement. He said, "The deep learning models, the architectures are not interesting. The data is interesting because if you think about our brain, um, you know, just the same as the deep learning, the, the architectures. If we grew up in." Mars, where there's no culture, no other people, this kid is going to grow up really boring. But because we grew up in the earth, we are trained by, you know, our neighbor culture, we travel. So that makes it interesting. What do you think about, you know, data versus model? Oh, that's such an interesting point. And I really like the way that uh, that you put this. Um, 
because that's the question nature versus nurture mm -hmm. so i think it's a little bit of both yeah. right when we uh, so first of all i think at the early part of my career i thought that models were about were everything right yeah. because this is the trap when you do uh, things like leaderboards and, uh, and so forth and you have fixed data mm -hmm. and you try to just like maximize that one percent two percent to get like that extra little variance and so you think that the most important thing is my model i'm gonna ensemble these models i'm gonna yeah. add like <laughs> this feature engineering and all yeah. this stuff and at the later part of my career, I was like, oh, wait, I can just get more data. <laughs> <laughs> and oftentimes getting more data is like way more, you know, quote unquote, bang for your buck than mm -hmm. um, than you would uh, doing models. Data is cheap. It scales to, to, to gather, whereas data scientists, they like to eat. They like to st <laughs> they like to stay in expensive places. I mean, they're just way more expensive yeah. than it is to collect uh, to collect more data. Mm -hmm. So it, um, um, it it turns out that data is far more important than than models. Now, if you're thinking about research, like what do I think? Like, do I think you know of, of, like the nature versus nurture? Like, what mm -hmm. happens inside our brain? I think it's a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, so uh, we published a, a paper in um, actually two papers in NeurIPS that kind of get at these kinds of questions. Mm -hmm. Like, when you're tr when you're learning during development, you know, when you're learning to move about in the world, what matters? Is it nature or is it nurture? And um, so I can get uh, a little bit uh, into that yeah, if you're yeah, uh, yeah, if you're interested in this to. question. So um, I've often been interested, you know, during my PhD and later on in the areas of our brain that don't deal with object recognition per se, that deal with motion, hmm. right? Because motion is such a is such a part of of who we are and of our evolution. You know, the smallest uh, beings they might not have been able to recognize each other a true vision. Like I can recognize you yeah. <laughs> even though I haven't seen you in, I don't know, like three years or something. Yeah. Um, but you know, a lot of uh, lower mammals or insects or, 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 uh, or mollusks might not be able to uh, do shape recognition or face recognition or anything like that. But what they are able to do is motion recognition, right? Mm -hmm. They're able to use motion in order to navigate inside the environment. And that's very useful evolutionarily. And so the question that we asked is, so we had all this data from different parts of the brain that deal with motion. And so we asked ourselves, okay, so if we look at pre-trained neural networks, um, that's all like the equivalent of ImageNet, but over time, are they aligned to the brain? Does that look like what the brain does? Mm -hmm. And it turns out that people do uh, do look at uh, different kinds of neural networks that are trained on 3D recognition tests. And by 3D, I mean uh, X, Y, and T, right? Yeah. So like little movie clips. Um, so there's all these uh, these data sets like uh, like something something where you're trying to um, or kinetics 400 where you're trying to take a little image clip and then saying that person is doing a robot dance mm -hmm. or they're doing skateboard or whatever. So uh, so the question is like these networks that are trained to do this, they're just basically the um, three dimensional versions of convolutional neural nets. Do they look? like the brain or not yeah and it turned out that they absolutely don't look anything like mm. what the brain does for uh, for motion so that was a that was an interesting finding in itself but we're like well we're still stuck because we have all this data yeah like what actually explains this data and so we trained this neural net on a very non-standard task which is to predict 
uh, how the camera is moving through an environment. Mm. So instead of so um, usually when <laughs> when humans um, take footage, video footage, they try to use a tripod, <laughs> right? Because it's very jarring when the image moves around yeah. a lot. So if I move around, mm -hmm. I, I like I know that I'm moving. I control my muscles. I control mm -hmm. my body, right? So I know that like I'm about to move in in different ways. Um, but when it's somebody else that's doing it, it's just usually better, unless you're trying to do a very specific kind of film effect, to keep the camera stable. So you don't have like this kind of wide field um, motion. So have you ever done uh, VR? Uh, ever, uh, yeah. So a lot of people experience... Uh, they seasick. Exactly. Yeah. They experience uh, uh, seasickness when... Uh, well, seasickness is a good example, mm -hmm. right? So seasickness happens because you get like lots of optic flow, lots yeah. of wide field motion mm -hmm. information because you see the sea wobbling up and down, <laughs> Yeah. right? And it's not you that's controlling it. Mm -hmm. Plus, you get like the vestibular effect, right? From uh, from because we have like a little accelerometer yeah. inside of our uh, inside of our inner ears, mm -hmm. and so the combination of these things just makes your body like, nope, I don't like this. I don't like this at all. My <laughs> there's a there's a mismatch between what I predict is going to happen and what's actually happening, mm -hmm. and that's when you get seasick. So what we found is when we train a, a deep neural net to solve this task of figuring out like where this you know simulated person is moving in this environment, mm -hmm. that learned really good motion representations mm -hmm. which align to the brain. And in control analyses, um, you know we tried uh, the same objective but in two different environments, and uh, where one environment was motion enriched, so it was like this kind of, of thing. That, uh, where you're you're trying to predict the uh, the uh, the motion parameters from uh, from the sequence, and the other one which looked like the kinds of data sets like uh, data sets like uh, Kennedy's 400, and one was just much 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 better aligned with the brain uh, mm -hmm. than the others. So that means that the brain is really trying to solve this problem. It's the data that it receives that mm -hmm. allows it to bootstrap itself into existence. So even for the brain, you know, on evolutionary timescales, the models don't change and the data changes much faster. Yeah. Does that make, uh, does, does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I think that's, uh, you talk a little bit about the paper, your head is there to move you around, right? Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah. The, uh, that's the paper that, uh, mm -hmm. that I was talking about. Yeah, it's named after a, a, a song from uh, R.E.M., which is a band from the 80s. So I apologize if people don't know that reference. It's a little <laughs> bit dated. Uh, don't go look it up uh, on YouTube because it's a bit of an earworm. <laughs> Um, and uh, in the paper, you mentioned uh, you use the uh, ResNet 3D. So um, I worked on um, action recognition problems. So there are other oh, options. Really? Yeah, like i3D, um, like slow, fast. Um, do you remember what made you choose the ResNet 3D? Yeah, so it was precisely for this uh, for this reason of te teasing apart model versus mm -hmm. data. So at the time that I really started delving deep into this project. The most popular arch architecture were 3D ResNets. Okay. And so I didn't want to make a point about if you pick this architecture which has all these like 
unusual elements. That's how you learn a brain-like representation. That wasn't the kind of paper that I wanted to write, although there's probably like some of that uh, happening. Mm -hmm. I wanted to make a paper about how the data changes the brain's representation and how much the data is important in this whole task. Yeah. So I used uh, architectures which were as close to possible as the kinds like I3D and, and Slowfast, mm -hmm. which were already in production and which were already popular at okay. the time. So the ResNet 3D, it doesn't have any special significance other than that's what everybody was using at the time mm -hmm. or like variations thereof. And it just made the, the, most, uh, the most sense because people can say, well, your results are just because you have a different architecture than, than everybody and you're baking in some, some inductive biases or something like that because ultimately it's the same. In fact, some of the code for the 3D ResNet is, you know, comes from uh, like the, 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 the residual pathway. Mm -hmm. it's, it's almost like line by line what you would see in, uh, I think it's I3D or, or, or something. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, um, but, you know, as you mentioned, you, you could, like, really focus on the model, but I think the data is just so much more important. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And after you um, build a model, did you try to um, do some interpretation to look at the layer to see what a model is trying to see? Oh, yeah, that's my, <laughs> <laughs> that is, is my, uh, the, the, the thing that I love doing. It's a, I mean, I work in vision, so yeah. I, when vision scientists look at things, they communicate it visually because, I mean, everybody's like, <laughs> just think about like a room full of vision scientists and then you're trying to tell them, I'm going to show you something and you're going to look at it with your eyes and interpret it. Everybody's like, yes, I'm on board. Yeah. <laughs> Don't show me the numbers, just show me the visualizations. Yeah. Uh, it's a very per particular uh, world in, the, in that way. But there's a long history of people trying to open up these black boxes, right? And the brain is a black box in mm -hmm. many ways because it does stuff. And we don't to totally understand what happens in the middle. Yeah. And deep neural nets are, are kind of similar. So people have developed model, uh, methods in neuroscience to solve these kinds of problems, the, the, um, the black box problem. And there are methods to visualize, for instance, maximal mm -hmm. activations inside of intermediate layers. So, yeah, so we did uh, use uh, that and variations of, uh, of popular methods. And in fact, that was um, very helpful in diagnosing, well, what's the difference between an I3D that's trained on action recognition yeah. and my 3D resonance? Mm -hmm. It turned out that the big difference is that one learns motion in that, you know, uh, motion energy or, or like contrast moves from one location to another versus frames through time mm -hmm. is what I would describe action yeah. recognition. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you look at the intermediate layers of action recognition network, networks like I3D, I 3D, I can only describe it as people moonwalking, like silhouettes moonwalking is kind of the standard thing that you find out mm -hmm. of the intermediate layers, because there's a lot of categories that turned out to be dancing, walking, motion, mm -hmm. basketball, whatever, that involves a lot of motion. So if you look at the intermediate layers, you try to maximize for that, you find a lot of people that are doing what looks like uh, like stuttering uh, moonwalking. Yeah. <laughs> so does our brain also have the, this uh, kind of temporal processing of motions when we recognize actions? Uh, that's a very interesting question. So one point that 
I tried to make in the paper is that um, action recognition is, or people like to talk about biological motion. Mm -hmm. That's the, the, the jargon term that they like to use. I think that that's something, it's quite similar to shape. Essentially, it's mm -hmm. just shape with snapshots. Yeah. Right. So um, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but you can sometimes look at people just the way that they walk. Like you'll look at them from behind and you'll immediately know who they are. Yeah. Just from the way that they walk, even if you can't see their faces. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like a big muscly guy might walk like this. Mm -hmm. And whereas somebody that's a little bit more uh you know lean would like walk in a in, in kind yeah. of a, a different uh in a different fashion yeah. so it turns out that these kinds of cues we use all the time mm. um but uh in and i think in action recognition uh, in these networks it's probably like the same kinds of representations mm -hmm. that are that are used it's the same kind that allow us to um extract characteristics of of uh of people or of scenes mm -hmm. um and we apply it for the for for this other problem as well um so i think that um the yeah these uh, these two problems are related but they're more shape like problems yeah yeah so we don't we don't necessarily use this information about people mm -hmm. in order to self-navigate. Like, it's not like we see somebody like walking like this and we're like immediately, oh no, I'm going to get eaten by a shark and then we move away. Right. Whereas the motion, the pure motion pathway is really about doing those kinds of snap decisions, like moving away or like, oh, I just like hit a rock. So I'm seeing a lot of motion. I should like move my muscles accordingly yeah. so i don't fall flat on my face yeah um so it's these kinds of things that the motion pathway does so i think that it's if somebody at home uh, wants to uh, to take a look at the, at these problems I, I think these are like really interesting and and open problems uh like how does the brain do action recognition yeah and does it do it and and is, is it similar to to what i3d does for instance right. but how does it do motion recognition? It's not like I treat it does it. Mm -hmm. That's what I know. Yeah. I learned a little bit about the brain when I was reading about the slow, fast model. It has a slow pathway and a fast pathway. And it seems mm -hmm. like that's actually how we, how our brain works or how our visual like system works. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So there's a lot of ideas that are inspired uh, by the brain. Um, but uh, importantly, in slow, fast, uh, they didn't prove that one of the pathways was more motion-like versus the other mm -hmm. one is more shape-like. Yeah. And so when I tested slow fast, um, so this, the, 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 it should be the case that the slow pathway is more like uh, shape mm -hmm. and the fast pathway is more like motion. Yeah. Didn't find that. Um, right. I think when it's I just tried that, to align to yeah, the Yeah. It seems like I think the architecture, at least the time when I was looking at it, it just the number frame they sample is different but i don't think they specify which one is shape which one is motion well the 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 slow one should be shape mm -hmm. that's the hypothesis but i didn't find it to be um 
I didn't find the so-called motion pathway to be very motion sensitive. Yeah. And you can do something really, really simple to determine whether a neural network is sensitive to motion or not, mm -hmm. right? Which is you show a grading, like this is a grading, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so it goes, you know, white, black, white, black, white, black, mm -hmm. right? And then you just, you just move it across. Uh, the screen. Yeah. And if the first layer neurons uh, are selective for one direction and they don't like the other direction, mm -hmm. then you've got motion sensitivity. And if you don't, you don't have motion sensitivity. So it turns out that um, uh, I2D and, and SlowFast, they don't have the selectivity in the first layers. Yeah. So they yeah. never really learn motion per se. Right. Have you applied any um, learnings or philosophies from computer vision architectures into language models. Hmm. I know there are like some people do convolution when they do um, text processing these days. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think that people are realizing more and more that the architectures don't matter so much. And in fact, yeah. you know, you can really use anything for anything. Mm -hmm. So I was certainly very surprised uh, by the visual transformers paper. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, transformers are state of the art models, uh, you know, famous models like GPT-3 mm -hmm. are transformers. So they have these stacks of attention layers uh, or, or self-attention uh, layers um, that, you know, slowly build up a, a representation mm -hmm. and can do things like um, uh, like completion or translating uh, different texts. And I think that people for a long time didn't think that those would be very competitive in vision. And then yeah. they did the visual transformers. And it turns out that they're very competitive, especially if you have lots and lots of data sets. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a lot of cross-pollination. Like if you find a good architecture, probably the reason that it works well for a set of problems has less to do with, uh, it has a lot of inductive biases, especially as, as you get larger and larger data sets. Mm -hmm. But it has more to do with, is it easy to backpropagate through this um, um, to this architectures, do the gradients blow up? You know, does it has like nice property throughout the training process and so on and so forth? And does it have enough capacity? Um, and the final thing is, can it be accelerated with the kinds of hardware that you have? You know, mm -hmm. do you have like the right kinds of GPUs and TPUs? And, yeah. Um, and well, what kinds of, uh, of special tensor operations they have implemented so they can be done efficiently. Mm -hmm. So those are probably the, the questions that determine whether a certain architecture is, is good for this uh, for a problem or not. I think in the neurosciences, when we saw that the visual transformers were really uh, you know, killing it, so to speak, in, the, yeah. in image classification, we were kind of horrified because it really doesn't look like a brain. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but then people found later that if you train them in just the right way, they are actually like quite a bit aligned to the brain. So, you know, you never know. Um, I wouldn't put a lot of faith into this type of model is better for this uh, for this kind of thing. It's mm -hmm. it's it's a bit of a moving target as well. And generally, people like to use people there, there, there's kind of these uh, of these trends that uh, that come on board. Yeah. So. I think if we took this interview like a year ago, it was like, I would be, you know, resonance all the way. Mm -hmm. If I say today, I'd be like, well, look at clip, look at uh, different kinds of uh, visual transformers. Um, so, yeah.
Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, I know uh, you're working on some secret project. But what are some <laughs> other research you've you done um, recently or you're working on that you can share with us? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm, uh, I'm also interested in, uh, in how um, the brain developed the way that, uh, that it did, right? So we were talking about, uh, about slow fast yeah. uh, and about how it has like these two parallel kinds of, uh, of pathways. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, people can bake in uh, these kinds of inductive biases into different uh, kinds of networks. But uh, the question is like, how did it happen inside the brain? Like did the brain already have like baked in inductive biases and then like kept doing it this way or like what's, or what's going on there. And so um, uh, my colleague uh, uh, Shahab uh, Bakhtiari and I, uh, mostly Shahab, <laughs> I should say, uh, work on this, uh, on this problem of looking at different kinds of, um, um, of uh, uh, training procedures that would uh, let uh, two different parallel streams develop. And so what he found was, I think is really, really interesting is that if you train a network in a self-supervised fashion, so using a, a contrastive um, uh, network uh, or contrastively trained network, you can actually get two parallel streams that develop. And one of them is indeed more motion-like and the other mm -hmm. one's more shape-like. But the two parallel streams, importantly, they weren't predetermined to be motion-like and or uh, or shape like and they were completely symmetric before you actually trained mm. and so that's the that's the magic there is all you need to do in order to get this these these two parallel representations which are specialized for two different kinds of things yeah. it's just to place place a little partition uh behind the two so maybe you can learn some uh, some lessons about team management from that if you want. <laughs> if you want people to specialize, just uh, just give them a little uh, um, a little cubicle, and uh, <laughs> they might specialize for different things. Um, I'm being facetious, of course. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think that was a really uh, interesting lesson about uh, evolution. But it's it's interesting because it recapitulates some some weird or, or unusual things that people have found in training deep neural nets. So if you remember, uh, this is going to date me, of course, uh, you know, the paper from Alex Krzyzewski mm -hmm. and Jeff Hinton in 2012, the famous AlexNet paper. Um, at the time, they only had uh, GPUs that could have, I think, like three gigs of memory or, mm -hmm. or something. So yeah. they were very, very limited. So what they did is they placed uh, one set of filters for the first uh, for the first layer on one GPU mm -hmm. and another set of filters on the second GPU, which was very unusual at the time. But they said, like, this is how we did it. Like, don't ask us <laughs> on that set. But one thing that was very interesting that they found is that they just trained this on an image classification problem. Mm -hmm. One set of filters specialized for color and the other set of filters specialized for orientation. Okay. So... Uh, to like edge detection, mm -hmm. if you will. But the two sets of filters were totally symmetric. The network, it, it's not like it had some uh, something that was baked in mm -hmm. that was that it was asymmetric. Yeah. It just self-organized into this asymmetric thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that it was very interesting. 
And that might be a model for how the brain has evolved different functional specializations. Like basically, if you have modules which are unspecialized and you give them the right kind of data they and you give some sort of competition or mm -hmm. something in between them, they'll specialize to do their own thing. And if you have a little bit of an inductive bias, like yeah. one is more slightly more motion-like than the other, then the motion-like one will consistently become motion-like, mm -hmm. right? So it just takes a little bit to be a little bit over the edge in order yeah. to get the, that consistent assignment. But I, I always thought that that was such a cool finding from, uh, from the early literature, and it mm -hmm. took a long time for us to really understand what it even meant. You know, I don't think that people like, really understood the, uh, uh, the significance of, uh, of that finding yeah. in 2012. Yeah. So now, um, what do you think about the future of newer AI? What are the, some new opportunities? Oh, my. Uh, I think uh, the field is wide open, and uh, when I go to these uh, uh, to these occasions uh, to do interviews, mm -hmm. I always say to people, if you're interested about the brain, and you know you have technical skills, you like AI, this is the best time out of ever in history mm -hmm. to jump into this field. Yeah. Um, so uh, anybody can jump in, and and um, there are very nice um, uh, training opportunities if you're. Uh, for instance, a, a graduate student, maybe not directly in neuroscience, but in an adjacent discipline, and you want to learn more about this, mm -hmm. um, there are summer schools uh, which people can uh, can go into, and they're very affordable. And uh, I was involved in, uh, in one of them, yeah. uh, Neuromatch Academy. Yeah. And so um, the first year we had 1,700 students in 61 countries and territories. The second year we had over 3,000 in 101 countries and territories including in places where it's you know traditionally very hard to uh, to reach like mm -hmm. Iran for instance we had like a special license from the department of state to be able to uh, um, to help uh, Iranian students like get that that education uh, yeah. in uh, in neuroscience and also a little bit in uh, artificial intelligence so if people are like want to get like a quick overview of of this field you know through an intensive tree work program like maybe there are a little bit like I was like 15 years ago saying, wow, this brain stuff is really cool. Yeah. Where do I start? This is a great place to start. Mm -hmm. um, but there's never been a, a, a better time to jump in. And as far as like the long-term trends that I see, to me, you know, that arrow from artificial intelligence to neuroscience as mm -hmm. opposed to the other one, it will keep growing yeah. and it will keep growing without bounds. So I wouldn't be surprised if you told me like 10 years from now, we'll have... Um, machines or models that I can just download off of Torch Vision mm -hmm. or, or Hugging Face or something that will be aligned to brains that will be, uh, that will be excellent approximations uh, of, uh, of the brain and that will be um, uh, biologically realistic, uh, that will be you know, ecologically motivated and uh, that scale and that have like all these nice properties. Uh, and are specifically tagged for different vein areas. I wouldn't be surprised at all if that happened. And it wouldn't just be for the for the shape part of the brain or for the um, uh, you know different visual parts of the brain. This mm -hmm. is going to be like a full fully multimodal uh, everything model. So you're talking about vision, language, even somatosensation, sensation, um, emotions, you know what have you. Yeah. Uh, so I think that that's coming in the ten in in the next ten years. So if people start now, they'll be like. 
right in on the game. Yeah. Um, and uh, BCI is is coming along, mm-hmm. right? So that's yeah. another incredible field to to get into. There's just so many opportunities uh, to help people right now. There's so many people suffer from neurological disorders yeah. and that um, really decrease their uh, their quality of life. And uh, you know, BCI has the promise to really help uh, these these people. And I'm sure that <laughs> that many people are already excited uh we saw the excitement for instance that people had about Neuralink uh, mm-hmm. uh early on uh even though it was just you know on paper yeah. uh for for a long time and i'm sure that many students at home are wondering well how do i get a job at Neuralink <laughs> right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh so people rec- recognize this is a cool area to study uh but there is definitely a path uh towards it so if you're you know, um, a master's student, computer science, artificial intelligence, math, stats, um, electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, uh, biological sciences, whatever, uh, there is a path. Uh, yeah. So start with Neuromatch Academy, uh, you know, go to grad school, do a PhD in neuroscience. That's usually, it's not necessarily uh, 100% um, uh, necessary, but it, it helps. Uh, and yeah, I mean, there's a whole world, uh, out there that, yeah. uh, that's awaiting for them. Yeah. And for data scientists who are curious to learn more about neuroscience, uh, and we don't, if we don't want to read textbooks, <laughs> do you have any <laughs> books or papers or YouTube channels to recommend? Oh yeah, absolutely. So there are podcasts that focus on this, uh, area of intersection. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that, uh, nearly inspired, mm-hmm. um, by Paul Middlebrooks, I want to say, is uh, one example. Mm -hmm. Um, There are written materials. There's a lot of great um, pop science books that Mm -hmm. are scientifically accurate and that give you a great overview of different parts of the field. Uh, So one example is uh, Russ Poldrack's book, which Mm -hmm. is called The New Mind Readers, which is about uh, using information from the brain and then translating it to you know like reading information out of the brain yeah. it's mostly focused on fmri but it's very good he's a prof at stanford uh super uh in in neuroscience and he does a lot of uh, interesting uh, computer science stuff and statistics as well uh then there's uh if you're interested in computer science in particular and that or or in modeling and that intersection of neuroscience i would say uh, Grace Lindsay's book, which is uh, called Models of the Mind, mm. is a great pop culture um, uh, book. And the equations are all at the end. So if you want to skip the equations, just understand the intuition. It's all there. Yeah, cool. Thanks for sharing that. And now when we um, think about your journey, what are something you wish you could learn earlier? Uh, something I could have wished I, I wished I could learn earlier. Um, you know, sometimes it's, it's very, very hard to see the forest from the trees when you're starting out, yeah. <laughs> right? So I was lucky in that I learned a lot of the fundamental elements like pretty early on. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means the math, the physics, and the stuff that hasn't moved for the last 150 years, you can be almost guaranteed that it's going to stay for a long time. Yeah. Right. So if, uh, so for instance, like Lagrangian mechanics, right. So I learned Lagrangian mechanics and physics. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
it's a very strange framework to think about how you solve equations of motions and, and, and so forth that involves like some infinite dimensional integral and, and differential <laughs> calculus and all this yeah. stuff. But you know what? Like this is the kind of math that uh, the difficulty of math that you're going to need if you eventually like want to um, learn about uh, optimization, for instance. So mm -hmm. you might have heard about uh, Lagrangian multipliers and, and, and so forth. So it turns out that having like this really good base is super helpful, regardless of, of uh, what you're uh, going to want to do. Mm -hmm. um, Programming, math, physics, you can't go wrong with that. And then the soft parts of it, like we can't really ignore. I mean, that's something that I didn't realize when I went into industry that um, being both one a nice person and a social person mm -hmm. was actually very important in order to multiply yeah. the goodness of what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. If you have a good idea and you don't communicate it to anybody, like you're unable to to say to to somebody like this is cool because of reason xyz yeah. um or if you're a jerk <laughs> you know in meetings that's that certainly happens yeah like the the, the fact of the, the of the matter is you're not going to have a lot of impact mm. so really working on those skills um that's something that i would have recognized earlier I would have liked to recognize earlier that it was important mm -hmm. as an academic you're often rewarded for not doing that right for yeah. basically like going inside your basement right. and then just doing Put experiments for uh yeah. for for a week yeah but when you're in an industrial setting i mean you really want to be able to talk to people and i mean the people that know about a lot of things mm -hmm. end up having the most impact because they have a lot of business contacts so that's something i wish i had recognized earlier mm -hmm. yeah thanks for sharing that and uh uh, can you share some mistakes you made? <laughs> yeah, so um, I'll, uh, I'll mention something that uh, a, uh, my manager at, uh, at Google told me once. Um, so I gave a presentation on vision and data science, mm -hmm. right? Because that was kind of my, my thing. And, um, and I explained it with... 80% stats, but I added a lot of vision into it because I think that it's also like a, a bad training as an academic. Like you want to show to people really fast that you're a really clever person that thinks <laughs> deeply about things. And this is a mistake. <laughs> like don't try to sound like the smartest person that you could be because people won't understand what the heck you're talking about. Yeah. And all they'll get out of it is like this person has their head in the clouds mm. and they don't get it. <laughs> like they can't communicate right. with other people. So he told me, um, I want you from now on for the next week to talk about stuff you know with your colleagues but you cannot use vision jargon Ooh. don't use fovea don't use the visual periphery don't use primary visual cortex mm. don't use the retina don't use <laughs> any you're like i don't have that, any language anymore <laughs> and, and i was like that's like cutting off my arms man why would you do this to me uh, but it was such a useful exercise yeah. uh because he said well you're you know you're limiting your impact by just mm -hmm. not communicating at the level where people are ready to like really understand it yeah and he was he was absolutely right because i had people in front of me who were like super super smart people you mm -hmm. know phds and stats 
uh, from the best universities, but like they didn't understand anything about the brain because they had never studied it. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't understand a lot about, you know, their particular subfield of, of, of stats, like maybe like causal inference or like large scale Bayesian models yeah. or something. And so we had to create that common language. Mm -hmm. um, so if you can make that exercise, I think the best way to become good at explaining your research is to going is to go on podcasts, yeah, uh, <laughs> and then try to explain it to right. uh, to, uh, to, to to people uh, yeah. from uh, from many different disciplines. Yeah, especially I, I, when people listen to podcast, they're probably I know you guys probably doing laundries or cooking, so you need to explain it in a way when people are not paying fully attention to it in a fun way. I think you did a great job. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, I, I really appreciate uh, talking to and like, exp I, I don't know, giving people my enthusiasm for uh, for the research and also for that intersection between mm -hmm. industry and academia. I don't think that um, this is an either or situation. You know, yeah. there's just a lot of cross pollination. There's a lot of really interesting mm -hmm. ideas which are bubbling up right now. And people will find a way to to get industrial applications, but they need to keep that that flow of information, that flow of knowledge open. Mm. And that just means being open, open-minded and open-hearted and, you know, creating those, uh, those connections. Yeah. And uh, previously you shared uh, some advice you got from your advisor um, during your uh, PhD. Uh, in the industry, did you have any mentors and what are some most important advice they gave you? Uh, yeah, so I mentioned uh, one from uh, from Google. That was yeah. that was great. Um, I think that that was uh, was some great insight. I've got a lot of nice uh, mentorship from other software engineers and data scientists, both mm -hmm. at Google and uh, and at Facebook. I think that one thing that really resonated with me over the long term is how important when you're inside of a, a big company to try to align yourself to the company's interests in terms of if you want your research to or your um, or your work to really impact the company mm -hmm. it's it, like you need to do the legwork of explaining that yeah um, so well of course if you're in something like ads uh, I mean it's obvious like why it's in the best interest of the company to make sure that the ads are working correctly and that you know they're uh, they keep uh, the, the cash the, the, the cash flow in and so on and so forth when you're doing research as I was at, at Facebook or industrial research it's also important to explain those uh, different steps. And so what one thing that I learned from my manager at Facebook is really to split all that uncertainty about, uh, about a technical project and, and split it up into these different areas so that you can attack them one after the other and you can really show milestones, mm. right? So that when you come back to your supervisors, supervisors, supervisors in, in three to six months, they can really see um, the progress. And that can often mean, you know, changing the way that you do your Gantt chart so that you really align that, that progress to these, uh, to these milestones. Yeah. Doing, doing large scale projects, it's, it's always hard, especially if it hasn't been done before. Mm. Now, if it's a me too project uh, or sorry, a, uh, like a, uh, a project that is very, 
similar to another project that's been done before. You kind of know what to expect and how much mm-hmm. time it's uh, it's going to take. But how do you deal with massive uncertainty? Yeah. Right. Um, so that's definitely something that I learned uh, in my journey as well. Yeah. So, for example, how do you deal with massive uncertainty, especially when there's uh, the pressure of time? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, there's different kinds of models of, uh, of uncertainty. Uh, one is you can have a sequential uncertainty, so kind of like a funnel. Right. So let's talk about like uh, marketing statistics. Right. So you have some funnel. So you're going to have people like click on your email. Maybe if they click on the email, they'll have some conversion to put stuff in their uh, in their cart. And then once they put stuff in their cart, they're going to have some probability of actually like going through payment. So every time that you do one of these things, you you lose a certain uh, percentage. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's a multiplicative effect. Right. You start at at one and then you have to multiply all your uh um all your your losses together in order to get the uh, the final number mm-hmm. so uncertainty in projects is um is very similar so if you have three independent processes and you're like these three things have to happen in order for my project to be viable mm-hmm. uh so you can <laughs> you can either uh, it, it, the, the 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 um the stats come out to to be about the same Right. So it's the same kind of multiplicative mm-hmm. effect. And so every time that you uh, that you come in out of the gate, you're going to lose maybe maybe you have like 60 percent chance of of your like this one part of the project not working. Mm-hmm. OK, but then like once you, you get into the 40 percent, then there's going to be like some secondary gate and third gate and so forth. So you can either. OK, so if you have a very limited amount of resources, what you should do is you should do the thing that minimizes the uncertainty the fastest, right? So if you have three things and one thing only has a 20% chance of working, that's the first thing that you should do. Uh, and you should go all in on that problem. You should put all of your resources mm-hmm. towards it. And then after that, you go on to your second and your third milestone. On the other hand, if you have more resources and really it's and I mean, by resources, I mean capital. And your problem is that you don't have a lot of time, yeah. which can often happen in, in industrial research. Then what you should do is you should parallel path it. So you should do these three things, these three gates uh, in parallel. And so there's a process by which you look at all the elements of uncertainty. Mm. You partition the uncertainty. You try to chop them up in parts which have equal kind of uncertainty. And or maybe there's one part of the project that just has this huge uncertainty over it and then you fully uh, go down this path. Or mm-hmm. if there's multiple parts which are kind of dependent on each other, you do these parts in, uh, in parallel. So it turns out that if you're reasoning, as a, you're, you're reasoning as a data scientist and if you're looking at conversions and marketing things, I think it's very similar to what, the, to what you need to do in order to make a nice Gantt chart, yeah, <laughs> for instance. Yeah, I like that. Gaining um, kind of philosophy from data science method and then apply that to real life. Now you are an independent research scientist. And uh, do you have uh, your own board of directors to give you feedback or bounce idea with? Uh, so I'm lucky to have had a number of, uh, of colleagues over the years mm-hmm. that can give me feedback on, on papers. So 
Um, so I got two papers into NeurIPS this year. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, thankfully, <laughs> it wasn't. Uh, I wasn't like penning them in my uh, uh, in my um, basement uh, by myself. <laughs> uh, in part because I don't have a basement. Mm-hmm. You know, I live in, on the third floor. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's very important to have strong colleagues that can give you honest feedback, mm-hmm. and uh, it's very easy to get into a situation where. Nobody around you like could, will really give you that that crucial feedback that yeah. you need at that time. So you need to surround yourself with uh, uh, with people who can be honest with you, mm-hmm. and that can be negative and that can be positive, right? Yeah. I mean, they can give you negative feedback and mm-hmm. positive feedback. But in my view, negative feedback is positive, yeah, right. <laughs> right? Because it helps you grow and it helps you. Um, so I once wrote uh, an article, and it was. Um, I, I was trying to do something that was a little bit out of my comfort zone. I wanted to take some neuroscience research and then explain to a general public how important this research was to think about you know, their own behaviors. Yeah. And I, um, I sent a draft to a friend of mine, and he told me, I never want you to, <laughs> to, to, to publish this. Yeah. This is terrible. This is like, to the lowest common denominator, I hate it. You did a terrible job. Please don't show it to anybody. Mm-hmm. And I put it back in my drafts, and then I never thought about it again. Uh, but it was great feedback because I read it uh, years later, and I was like, oh, my God. I was, wow. like, really okay. on a weird tangent there. Yeah. <laughs> but that happens. I mean, if you do a lot of exploration, mm-hmm. some ideas are going to hit, and some ideas are just going to be just bad. Yeah. Um, it's really important, too, to get the... If you want to do research, for instance, to, to get, like, good research taste, mm-hmm. uh, so to speak. Um, so there's Chris Ola's... Um, there's a great guide from from uh, Chris Ola, who is a researcher. who was previously at Google Brain, then OpenAI. He's now mm-hmm. is, uh, Anthropic, and he has a guide on finding good research taste. And that takes a long time, and that is often uh, going to require some back and forth with people who have a little bit more insight um, into you know the field as a whole. You have to understand that when you start out as a grad student, you're going to ask some questions. They're going to be interesting questions, but you're going to have no wedges and no context for how to attack these questions. Mm-hmm. You're going to talk to, to, to your advisor, and they're going to have a lot more context. Same thing as when you go to industry. You're going to like have some, some insights, and they might not be like terrible insights, yeah. but you're not going to have a whole lot of business context. And you need that business context in order to make any sort of impact right. inside of the company. So it's, a, uh, it's always a, a back and forth there um, to you know, position yourself so that uh, the thing that you want to happen actually happens and you know, the thing that you deeply care about um, gets, uh, gets forward. And, but you need that feedback. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> working in a vacuum doesn't work for anybody. Yeah. It's just like how you train a model. You need to get a feedback and, uh, you know, do the gradient descent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so um, if you were to mentor some people, what is your best advice to them? I think you already gave a lot of advice. So what are something other things you usually tell them? Um yeah, so I think I gave a few different uh, pieces of advice. Mm-hmm. I think that when you move to industry, um, I think that it's important to have some kind of game plan yeah. for how you want to navigate this. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And it's important to recognize that some of your first roles are maybe not the roles that you will ultimately uh, want to go to, yeah. but that you have to start somewhere. Um, so I saw a lot, you know, in my experience uh, at Google that people would start as software engineers in, in, in ads, for instance, and would end up at Google Brain or DeepMind mm. because they really cared about artificial intelligence, but maybe didn't have the right background or, or, or insight. Right. So you can really uh, have a lot of, of leverage and be uh, very effective just by knowing systems inside of a company, for mm. instance. So that's one way that you can uh, crack this. However, it's very easy to uh, to maybe like lose sight of uh, your you know personal interests yeah. in uh, in different things, and then just like kind of wander off and just do uh, thing X, which mm -hmm. may not be the thing that you originally anticipated. So you know you have you have interests and. You know, a company has uh, has interests, and you know, a lot of the time they're they're going to be aligned, and sometimes they're going to be disaligned. But I would say, rather than trying to be the most generic person possible, mm. just be the person that you are, but find out uh, what kind of of kindred uh, spirits you can create uh, through your interaction with your manager and with your company, in order to create the impact that you need. Mm -hmm. The software engineering. Um, uh, interview kind of forces you into a mindset where you're like, I am generic person X, yeah. right? Because the questions are going to be the same. It's like very, it's kind of standardized testing. Yeah. But the reality is that once you're inside the company, you're training, you're not a generic person, no. right? And the impact that you can make is totally going to be dependent on that background that you have. Yeah. So you get pushed into this funnel. So don't, you don't have to be that generic person after that. Like think about how that, thing that you care about matter, like could matter uh, to the company and then make the best of it. Um, another example I had recently is uh, I get a lot of students, grad students, postdocs, uh, sometimes even professors that contact me and they're like, I want to make the switch to data science. Um, how do I do that? Yeah. I had a, a prof recently who was at a, a tenured uh, professor at a top 50 university in, uh, in America and he was uh, telling me, uh, you know, I am a manager now mm -hmm. and I don't want to be a manager. Yeah. And in academia, I can't not be a manager. Right. I want to be a, a, get a data science job. Mm -hmm. How do I get that? And I told him, like, you have to stop applying for, for data science jobs, for generic data science jobs, because mm -hmm. you're absolutely you're not gonna stand out. You're you're a bad candidate for this because mm -hmm. you're overqualified on the one hand. Right but you're underqualified on the other hand. Go apply at startups or at different companies that have something to do with neuroscience and neurotechnology, even yeah. if it's not directly your field, and you're gonna be 10 times more competitive. Like a recruiter or the company is not gonna, I mean, think about the, 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 the mechanics of, uh, of this, right? Uh, if you're uh, fresh out of college, I mm -hmm. think it, it makes sense for a recruiter, for a company to take a chance on you. But as you grow higher and higher up your, your career, your, your trajectory, your career trajectory has to align more and more to, uh, uh, to the expectations of managers. So he would have had to essentially like come in as a manager, but he didn't want to be a manager. But as uh, an IC, you know, could he really hold his own against, 
you know, people that have been in the trenches for a longer time. Exactly. But uh, in any case, he, uh, he switched the, uh, his method and got into a startup maybe like a week later after I spoke to him. So yeah, I think it was good advice. Wow. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> advice. I think it's really important and similar to advice I give to people when they try to uh, do transitions. Maybe you're a mechanical engineer and uh, you don't feel super confident about your you know, data science skills and don't completely forget about your current industry. Use it as a leverage. Go into a company or a team that needs this type of background. Maybe they just want a mechanical engineer that knows a little bit of data science and you coming as the person and you become this uh, uh, person who knows both data science and you know whatever background you have and um, kind of use that as your advantage instead of uh, a weakness right if you're just gonna become a generic data scientist you're not gonna stand out oh that's that's so true uh, another example I met this person who was a bridge engineer she was a yeah. civic uh, I think it's called ci no civil engineering right right um, and uh, yeah, I mean, as and and she wanted to switch careers to data science, mm -hmm. uh, doing things that are more directly related to things like architecture or uh, maybe like geospatial mm -hmm. data. Yeah, I mean, it just feels like you have much more of a wedge there right. than if you're going into another area. Yeah. Um, and uh, so what are something that used to deeply believing about neural AI or, you know, research or kind of in general in this realm, but uh, you don't believe anymore? I think that I think that I used to think that there was that uh, we could learn that we could create artificial intelligence systems that were uh, kind of biomimetic uh, that we could not just learn from the from the brain metaphorically, mm -hmm. but we can learn from the brain directly. Use brain data, in other words, to train um, uh, to train deep neural networks that would solve uh, problems of, let's say, computer vision and yeah. so forth. Um, and in fact, I, I pitched this idea uh, to um, uh, to a research group uh, inside of a, a, a startup that was doing uh, uh, research in mm -hmm. uh, in neuro AI. I think it was in 2015, and you know, I remember very well the CEO being like, well, "How's that going to work? What are you going to do there?" And I think I just had like an intuition, like, yeah. "Well, you know, AI is so big, neuro, these things are going to come together. I don't totally get it, mm -hmm. but I, you know, we'll figure it out." And I was like, "Well, this is never going to work." And I realized that my idea was pretty bad. Mm -hmm. and the reason I say this is because um, it's so much cheaper to get data from sensors, mm -hmm. from things like cameras, from um, uh, from lidar, even yeah. than it is to get data from the from the brain. So, uh, so sometimes people are able to show that if you realign some pre-trained neural net to the brain, you can get it to be slightly better at at task. But usually, it's not against models which are state-of-the-art and by the time that the paper is published it's not state-of-the-art anymore so i think if you're going to do research in neuro ai and you want to say i'm going to make ai better by looking at some neuroscience principles mm -hmm. you're not it's not going to be these one two percent things it's yeah. you have to swing for the fences hmm. right you have to you have to go deep you have to be like i think i need like a hippocampus in my model or something yeah. <laughs> so that's uh um so that's one thing that I learned. I realized that when you create arguments for like this area of research, I think it's going to happen. You also have to look at technological trends. Mm. 
right? To see, so the argument that I made, like, oh, you know, you could use neural data to train deep neural nets and then use them for computer vision. Yeah. That maybe it's not economically feasible right now, but maybe it will be in the future. Mm -hmm. So what would be the, uh, the data point that we would need for that? Uh, well, you would need to show that you would need to compare Moore's law for computers against Moore's law for neuroscience data. Mm. And it turns out that if you look at, which are of course, you know, like what, uh, what is the doubling time for, let's say the number of electrodes that you can measure uh, in a brain versus the number of transistors that are in a chip, right? And it turns out that the doubling time for neuroscience is quite a bit longer than it is for, uh, um, for, for silicon. Yeah. And that means that not only is that gap, <laughs> that economic gap, large, but it's just getting larger and larger mm -hmm. every year. Yeah. And so it's very hard to make a good argument that these technological trends are all going to go in the right direction. Mm -hmm. So if it's a million times more expensive now, in 10 years, it might be 10 million times more expensive now. <laughs> so, it doesn't, so, you know, you can do a back of the envelope calculation like that and say, wow, that doesn't really work. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, before we wrap up, what's something exciting in your either personal life or in your career? Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I got a dog. Okay, that's exciting. Yeah, that is very uh, that is very exciting. So mm -hmm. in my personal life, uh, you know, I'm uh, I'm lucky to uh, to be married uh, to uh, my wonderful wife, yeah. who's an ophthalmologist by training, and uh, so she's uh, she's an eye expert, and I'm a brain vision expert. <laughs> yeah. So it kind of just works out. Um, but one thing that you know, where we're different is that she's loves animals mm -hmm. uh very much and i was always you know it wasn't like really my thing when mm -hmm. i was younger and i realized as i grew older that um that uh, that animals are just uh, pretty wonderful beings yeah and so it speaks to the power of uh, of flexibility and i think uh, in the same way that you can be flexible in your personality you have to be a little bit flexible in your career so that you know, you can be you can be a little bit like water instead yeah. of being like rock, right? Yeah. So, go to the things, and I I realized that it would make her so much uh, so much happier in her life, and it would make me a little bit happier. But mm -hmm. the second order effect would be so high. <laughs> um, so we have a little Chihuahua. His name is Marvin. Marvin. Uh, Marvin the Martian, or Marvin the. Uh, the muffin. I don't know if you've mm. ever seen uh, pictures of neural nets like trying the to classify dog and uh, the muffin. muffin. Yeah, I yeah, shared yeah. that on LinkedIn. Exactly. Before. And exactly. also the bagel um, and a, a dog. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it does look like a little muffin, a little blueberry muffin <laughs> with three blueberries. Yeah, um, there's actually a paper. I think someone was able to differentiate that. Yeah. Well, that's that takes a that takes a lot of GPUs yeah. to be able to differentiate these two. <laughs> they do look uncannily similar. Yeah. And also I, I know I think you told me you and your wife met through swing dancing. That's right. Yeah. So what are some other things you like to do outside of work? So <laughs> we have a lot of hobbies. I gotta say. Um uh, so one thing that we're uh, we're working on right now, I I, I love to go outside of my uh, area of expertise, mm -hmm. uh, but apply technical uh, things to um, like maybe like conventionally like manual problems. Yeah. So uh, we're working on uh, an arcade cabinet right now. Mm -hmm. uh, so we love video games. We love 
old school video games. Yeah. So we're building an arcade cabinet, uh, you know, using acrylic and a laser cutter to like design the plans. Mm-hmm. So I'm uh, really digging, dig, digging deeply into mechanical engineering yeah. for, uh, for, for that purpose, uh, which is far outside of my zone and comfort. <laughs> but uh, uh, we're learning a lot through that. Yeah. And I should say that I've done research with, uh, with my wife. I do have a paper yeah, with her awesome. um, where we looked at you know, how treatments for cataracts yeah. affect glaucoma, which is another disease of the eye that has mm-hmm. nothing to do with it. And so that was a great learning experience. And if you want to stress test your relationship, I highly <laughs> recommend like trying to write a paper with your significant <laughs> other because you will work out all those things very rapidly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, thanks for sharing that. Um, so this is a great conversation. I learned a lot from you and uh, had a lot of fun. And for our audience who want to read more about your research, follow your work, um, keep up with you, where can they find you online? Uh, so I'm on Twitter. Uh, please join my 10,000 or so uh, <laughs> other followers. Uh, I write about neuroAI and about uh you know, gaps in between industry and academia and everything in between. Um, and I'm also uh, on xcore.net, which is my uh, my blog. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you want to put the links in the description and don't yeah. forget to hit that subscribe button. Subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, thank you so much for um, coming to San Francisco and have this conversation with me. And uh Um, Hopefully, we'll have this conversation again in a few years and uh, can't wait to uh, read more about your new research, your, your secret project. Absolutely.